Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. Years ago, I sat in my public policy journalism class when a professor circulated a 25-year-old essay that ran in the Washington Post. None of my mostly white peers could read beyond the provocative headline, How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites. Only I, the lone black student in the classroom at Northwestern in the late 1990s, defended the writer, Chicago journalist Leonita McLean. She had also graduated from our program. A racist, my classmates called her. She's so angry, they remarked as they screwed their faces. McLean, then an editorial writer for the Chicago Tribune, was describing her reactions to the 1983 mayoral race. Harold Washington had been elected Chicago's first black mayor. In response to Washington's victory, euphoria had swept over much of the city. Initially, it wasn't long, though, before embittered white Chicagoans started a racial backlash. In McLean's Washington Post essay, she wrote, So many whites unconsciously had never considered that blacks could do much of anything, least of all get a black candidate this close to being mayor of Chicago. My colleagues looked up and realized, perhaps for the first time, that I was one of them. I was suddenly threatening. She continued, this affair has cemented my journalist-acquired cynicism, robbing me of most of my innate black hope for true integration. The sullenness and cynicism that McLean expressed was apparently unshakable. She killed herself in May 1984, less than a year after the controversial post-essay was published. She was 32 years old. Chicago is still a place of de facto segregation, despite the sea of change represented by the election of Barack Obama. I am the same age that McLean was when she wrote that essay, working as a black journalist in Chicago. Thankfully, I haven't experienced the same kind of backlash she described, 
but in many ways, the segregated picture she painted isn't much different today. As I navigate my journalism career, I remain gripped by her experience. When she took the job at the Tribune in 1973, McLean joined the first wave of post-civil rights black professionals. The burden and privilege weighed heavy on her mind. In the days before McLean took her life, one of her white colleagues on the Tribune editorial board says she saw McLean working late in her office with the lights off. She asked if there was anything she could do. Don't worry about me, I'm fine, McLean replied, her hands cupping her face. Then McLean didn't come to work. When a colleague eventually went to check on her apartment, he found her in bed, hair combed, makeup applied. The lights were on. An overdose of pills took her life. I am still working to process McLean's story and the lessons in it for me. I don't struggle with the issues of depression as Leonita clearly did, but I do struggle with balancing two worlds. I chose journalism as a profession because I saw my black communities alternatively neglected and misrepresented in the news media. I remain acutely aware that McLean wrote for black people rather than simply about them in a mainstream daily publication. Each day, as I work the Chicago Beat, I know Leonita's story is one I can't afford to forget. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, March 4th. 2016 so I have been told a brand new book uh, for our book study club Uh, this is the first segment on Leonida McLean's A Foot in Each World essays and articles by Leonida McLean talked about this book referenced this uh, work many many times uh, over the years on the program and had said repeatedly that this was a book that I uh, wanted to do, think is extremely important, uh, particularly given, uh, said at the beginning of the year, that we should really be mindful of black mental health uh, during this year, really any time under white supremacy, but particularly this year, uh, Leonie McLean, black journalist, uh, she did a lot of reporting, had a lot of her material published in the Washington Post uh, and the Chicago Tribune. Uh, She lived in the Chicago area, wrote about racism in the Chicago area and in the world at large. Uh, Unfortunately, she committed suicide at the age of 32. Uh, That's something that we should certainly keep in mind as we are reading uh, her work, her different essays uh, that she had published. Uh, Without further ado, we will go ahead and get started. Context of white supremacy, Leonida McLean, A Foot in Each World. A Foot in Each World, Essays and Articles by Leonida McLean, edited and with an introduction by Clarence Page. Introduction Milestones Died Leonida McLean, 32, sensitive, idealistic columnist for the Chicago Tribune and the first black member of the paper's editorial board, whose emotionally charged commentary 
reflected the tensions of the city's racially polarized politics. By her own hand, an overdose of pills, after bouts of depression brought on, at least in part, friends said, by the strain of being a role model and by the furor resulting from an article she wrote for the Washington Post last summer titled, How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites, which prompted the city council to consider demanding an apology in Chicago, Time Magazine, June 11, 1984. This book was the idea of several people at once. There were members of her family, people with whom she worked at the Chicago Tribune, her personal friends, at least one official of Chicago Mayor Harold Washington's office, and me. But the real impetus for this project was Edward Bassett, Dean of the Meadow School of Journalism at Northwestern University, who suggested it to Jack Fuller, who, as the Tribune's editorial page editor, was McLean's supervisor and friend. Knowing I was similarly interested, Fuller passed the suggestion on to me and the project was born. We all agreed that media reports like the one illustrated above introduced many people to Leonita when it was too late for them to see her work for themselves. And those who had seen at least some of her work knew little of the person behind the often controversial words. Many of those who were stirred by McLean's writing had a way of lavishing praise and hero worship on her at a faster pace than she was willing to accept it. Warm, witty, and influential, Leonita McLean was also alienated, frustrated, and, as she confided to those who were close to her, nervous about her own success. Although she began her professional career in 1973, it was not until she wrote a provocative My Turn opinion column published by Newsweek in October 1980 that the public could read her personal views. In that first column, The Middle Class Black's Burden, she described her frustrations as an upwardly mobile black professional who, whose success came at a terrible cost of alienation from her own people. Few writers in the years that followed the racial advances of the 1960s have dealt so bluntly with the issue of what constitutes having sold out or how blackness should be defined or whether it should be defined. Whites won't believe I remained culturally different, she wrote. Blacks won't believe I remained culturally the same. Of course, there is nothing new or uniquely American about successful blacks receiving abuse from black militants. Algerian philosopher Franz Fanon, for example, chided the black bourgeoisie of French colonies. McLean provided a rare case of the bourgeoisie speaking back. I have a foot in each world, she wrote, but I cannot fool myself about either. I can see the transparent deceptions of some whites 
and the bitter hopelessness of some blacks. I know how tenuous my grip on one way of life is and how strangling the grip of the other way of life can be. She concludes that whites should avoid trading in old stereotypes about poor blacks for new stereotypes about successful ones. At the same time, she notes blacks should find encouragement in the success stories of some as an affirmation that the American dream can work. Inasmuch as we all suffer for everyone left behind, she concludes, we all gain for everyone who conquers the hurdle. Interestingly, this sentence probably describes as well as any McLean's personal struggle to find cheer in her own success while so many with whom she had grown up were left behind in what she liked to call the old country. Leonida McLean's life was an inspiration for young black professional women, wrote B.B. Moore Campbell in a postmortem in the December 1984 issue of Savvy Magazine. Her death is a grim reminder of how much we all have yet to learn. Campbell, in an article titled, Appropriately, To Be Black, Gifted, and Alone, Use McLean as an example, albeit an extreme one, of the unique stress faced by black professional women in a workplace as unaccustomed to them as they are to it. Leonida McLean finally laid her burden down and escaped the narrow alley located between pain and desire to another place. Her unanswered question continues to haunt her sisters. I have made it, but where? She was the first black member of the Chicago Tribune's editorial board and the newspaper's second black staff columnist in its 137-year history. Two months before she died, she was named one of America's 10 most outstanding career women by Glamour magazine. She had also received the Peter Lisa Gore Award from the Chicago chapter of Sigma Delta Chi, the Society of Professional Journalists, the 1983 Kizzy Award as an outstanding black female role model in Chicago, and in that same year, the top award for commentary from the Chicago Association of Black Journalists. Not that any of this made her happy, Everyone is so nice to me, she said sadly, as she looked at her awards in her living room during one of my last visits with her. But why am I not happy? It was a plaintive plea for help, which no one, not her family, friends, or psychiatrists, could answer. Interviews in some of her remarkably revealing childhood writings make clear that McLean's struggle to resolve grave personal identity problems was compounded by the unusual stresses faced by blacks who undertake the long journey from a childhood in the ghetto to jobs in white-dominated professions, concluded reporter Kevin Close in a 
profile for the Washington Post after interviewing three dozen people, including her relatives, co-workers, and psychologists. These racial pioneers may possess special reservoirs of eloquence, as did McLean, but they must withstand enormous strains of isolation that whites seldom encounter in achieving similar success. She got all the stresses on all levels of blackness, black Harvard psychiatrist Alvin Poussant told Close. There is guilt about feeling she had certain advantages because she's light-skinned. The apprehension that maybe other blacks would not accept her because she's light-skinned. The old self-doubts. Am I really thinking black or are my experiences different because I'm light-skinned? How effective am I? Can I speak for my brothers and sisters? Neither close nor Poussaint knew Leonita during her life. But they probably came about as close as anyone, and closer than most of those who speculated publicly about her death, to uncovering the demons that tormented her soul. Even her family and friends could say only that they knew the part of her that she chose to reveal. Leah was quite an accomplished actress, you know, said James Younger, a Tribune reporter and lifelong friend, in his eulogy at her funeral. Beneath that public person who was so pretty and gay and successful, there was a constant, ultimately deadly thread of uncertainty and self-doubt. But she knew, and refused to keep quiet about it, that despite the transitions taking place in this country, Racism remains alive, and she did not mask the depth of her rage at injustice and mulish misunderstanding. When she spoke out, when she spoke the truth, it disturbed a lot of people who had thought they knew her. She was subjected to meanness and hypocrisy, and she knew who the hypocrites are. Of course, there was more to Leonita than the race question, which columnist George Will calls America's perennial problem. Yet the race question seemed to invade every aspect of her life, even from her birth. She was born on Chicago's South Side in Provident Hospital, which she would seldom disclose without noting with pride how a black surgeon once performed the world's first open-heart surgery in this black-owned hospital. She was the youngest of three daughters born to Lloyd McLean, a factory worker, and his wife Elizabeth. She grew up in the sprawling Ida B. Wells public housing project, a complex coincidentally named for a heroic black female journalist. Asked in later years why she thought she had been able to make it economically while so many of her fellow housing project residents did not, she would attribute it to her family. She would often single out something she had that remains too rare in project households, a loyal father. Leonita and her two older sisters, Leatrice and Anita, from which Leonida's name was derived, 
went to public schools at a time when strict dress codes were observed, gangs and drugs were not yet a plague, and it was not as difficult as it would be in later years for a couple of struggling parents to protect their little girls from the dangers of life in the projects. Her marks were good enough for her teachers to promote her a full grade ahead of her peers. Her mother would later recall that she expressed concern to a school official about Leonita's ability to keep up with older students. The official assured her that the school could advance Leonita two additional years and she would still keep up. It was in high school that she began to write poetry, which she would keep in cardboard folders hidden from public view. I should like to die in winter when my blood upon the snow will leave a clue to those who pass of my brief feudal life. The garnet stain, like a wash test, will lead each to his conclusion. Too much too soon, one will say. Too little too late, will say another. And none will learn the truth of the matter. My secret will melt with the snow. But the spot will run red each winter hence, though I be rotted below. That sensitive young woman was only two years old when the United States Supreme Court declared that school segregation was wrong, that separate by its very nature was not equal. Hers was the baby boom generation that grew up with the boycotts, sit-ins, riots, police brutality, assassinations, attempted assassinations, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Vietnam, and Watergate. In her family's small two-bedroom apartment, she watched the televised coverage of Chicago police clashing downtown with demonstrators at the Democratic National Convention in the summer of 1968. She would recall later, with cynical irony, that she was not surprised to see police wielding clubs on young people, only that the young people were mostly middle-class whites. Her sisters became public school teachers, a profession Leonita considered until one day while attending classes at Chicago State University, the same former teacher's college that both of her sisters had attended. She was notified that her oldest sister, Leatrice, had walked into the crossfire of a gang feud and had caught a load of buckshot in an arm. Fortunately, Leatrice was not permanently injured, but the incident soured Leonidas on the idea. College introduced her to class consciousness in a big way, she would later recall. At Chicago State, the boys from the better-off neighborhoods would suddenly withdraw their requests for dates when they found out she lived in a housing project. She reacted by regarding her poor background as a badge of honor. Low income does not mean low breeding, she would point out. In fact, she found a certain nobility in the poor and their struggle to survive. Poverty snob, 
was the label she made up for herself. McLean would later tell friends that it was one of her instructors at Chicago State who suggested she apply to the Middle School of Journalism at Northwestern University. She did and was awarded a full scholarship. Although she graduated with high grades and met students and faculty who will become lifelong friends, she hated graduate school. It was her first time away from home and she felt quite out of place in the suburban campus among students from families far wealthier than any she had ever known. And though the scholarships and money saved from summer jobs covered her big expenses, she sometimes went for days with nothing but eggs in her refrigerator just to avoid asking her parents for help. In the spring of 1973, during her final quarter of graduate school, she was hired as an intern by the Chicago Tribune, which after she graduated, hired her as a full-time general assignment reporter. She covered such diverse assignments as a circus parade in which she rode an elephant and the aftermath of the assassination of Dr. King's mother in Atlanta. But she was a reporter for less than two years before she moved to the copy desk. Although she never failed to perform with excellence, the life of a reporter ran counter to her inclinations. She loved to write and edit, but hated most aspects of daily news reporting, particularly the need to prod and casual total strangers in revealing intimate details of their lives. The copy desk suited her shyness. She performed well, and her supervisors were no less eager than her public school teachers to promote her ahead of her peers. Soon she was promoted to the picture desk and then to the perspective department. She accepted each advancement with fear that she would not be able to do the job well enough to meet her own demanding standards of excellence. And each time she took the new position, within a month, she began complaining that the job was too easy. Besides a job, the Tribune unintentionally put her within heavy breathing room of a husband, a fact that should not, as James Thurber once wrote of his own marriage, get lost in the shuffle of these reminiscences. You cannot call ours a love at first sight, but I clearly remember how I was stricken immediately by the cute, sandy-haired, green-eyed, and freckled young black woman I saw trying to find her way around the Tribune newsroom on her first day at work. We became friends, and our infrequent dates turned within weeks into a warm, romantic relationship. We were married on May 28, 1974, a little more than a year after she came to the newspaper. It was a marriage cast in the American dream. We hosted integrated parties. We vacationed in the Caribbean, Europe, and Acapulco. We played racquetball and jogged in the park. Among co-workers, we were known good-naturedly as the golden couple. 
the very embodiment of black success. But I do not think anything concerned Leonita more than the plight of her race, of the poor and of black women. She had difficulty resolving that with our own young urban professional life. Among our mostly white neighbors in Chicago's trendy Belmont Harbor area, rising condominium fees and the quest for good imported wines were the biggest social concerns. Lee felt that young black professionals were, as a group, more socially concerned than their white peers. None of us is free until we are all free, Leonita would say. Yet black professionals were themselves the object of criticism from black activists who charged they had forgotten where they came from. Leonita resented that and, after much thought, decided her feelings might provide grist for what was fast becoming the greatest of the few remaining national soapboxes for freelance opinion, Newsweek's My Turn column. I am a member of the black middle class who has had it with being patted on the head by whites and slapped in the face by black hands for my success, she wrote in her blunt manifesto. I had doubts that Newsweek would find room for an essay so personal or that the magazine's mostly white editors would even understand it. But, in fact, it was just the sort of from-the-heart expository prose for which the My Turn section editors hungered. Ten days after she dropped her unsolicited essay into the mail, she was called by a Newsweek editor who wanted to arrange for a photograph. The column had been accepted. Reaction was immediate and strong. Phone calls streamed in, mostly from other black middle-class women, women who wanted to say, right on, sister, or words to that effect. More than 100 pieces of mail streamed in from as far away as South Africa, where a Cape Town newspaper had reprinted the column, editing out, interestingly enough, a line that referred to how her dilemma was not unique to the United States. Some critics, almost all of them white, wrote in to advise her to stop complaining and be happy with what she had. She began to receive invitations to California and Washington, D.C. to speak on one aspect or another of the changing agenda of black America. She was also invited by James D. Squires, the Chicago Tribune's newly installed editor-in-chief, to write columns for the newspaper, perhaps with potential for national syndication. The emerging class of black professional baby boomers needed a voice, and Leonida McLean was becoming that voice. More promotions came. Assistant prospective section editor, prospective section editor, occasional columnist, weekly columnist, editorial board, and twice-weekly columnist. This place had never given this kind of opportunity to a woman or a minority, Squires would tell the Washington Post, and I wanted to give it to one with a good chance to succeed. She was a young superstar, he said. Our marriage fell apart. As our careers blossomed, 
we grew apart more than I realized at the time. It was not until one day when Leonita said she wanted a divorce because she needed to find peace for her restless, troubled spirit in her own time and place that I realized that our marriage was in trouble. We tried for almost two years to hold it together, then decided to part as friends. In the summer of 1983, her bitter account in the Washington Post headlined how Chicago taught me to hate whites, of how betrayed she felt by whites she had thought to be more reasonable, touched off a flurry of controversy locally and nationally. Many will say in retrospect that the anguish Leonita expressed in the post piece was a reflection of her own personal anguish. Perhaps. Most people had no idea that she had already made an attempt at suicide one night, not long after she moved out of our household, or that she was seeing a psychoanalyst sporadically, or that she constantly lamented to me and other close friends that life for her no longer had much meaning. They found Leonita's body on Tuesday, May 29, 1984, lying as though she were asleep in a second floor bedroom in the three-story four-bedroom house she had bought and in which she lived alone in Hyde Park, a racially integrated island in Chicago's South Side ghetto, stabilized by the presence of the University of Chicago. A stack of sealed and labeled suicide notes was neatly arranged on a nightstand. She overdosed on drugs prescribed to ease her depression. It was precisely 10 years and one day after our wedding day. Have you ever lived in a nine-room prison constructed of your own hopes? She asked in what she sarcastically labeled her generic suicide note. It is not recommended. Happiness is a private club that will not let me enter. As my dreams will never come true, I choose to have them in perpetual sleep, she wrote. Then, a reference to one of her teen poems. I had always hoped to die in winter, but it will be cold enough soon for me. I could imagine her awash in her final bout of depression on that particular Memorial Day, a dreary day with rainy skies, high winds, and unusually cold temperatures that ruined picnic plans throughout the Chicago area and left countless families caged in their homes on the washed-out holiday, snapping irritably at each other. For Leonita, it was a perfect day to self-destruct. And now I take my leave, she wrote. When I think of Leonita's emotional troubles, other sensitive artists like photographer Diane Arbus or the poets Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton come to mind. Arthur Miller once wrote of fellow playwright August Strindberg that Strindberg not only suffered by what by most definitions would be madness, but managed it like a conductor managing an orchestra.
It makes his suffering no less real and painful to say that it was always being turned over and over by the bloody fingers of his mind. So it was with Leonida. Material comfort and worldly honors could not lighten the burden she placed upon herself, a cross she felt she had to bear for her people. From her vantage point, it became difficult to distinguish between the world's problems and her own. But through the magnifying glass of her own troubled soul, she brought important issues into focus so that the rest of us could see a little more clearly. The works on the following pages were selected as a sample of her work at its best. We categorized her writings into her most often expressed areas of interest and arranged her columns chronologically to make it easier to observe changes in her development as a young columnist and to follow such historical events as the continuing factional fights in Chicago's city council. Their value is more than historical. McLean was concerned with more than the maneuverings of a few local political players. Her accounts focus on the nature of power and how prejudice can be used in the fight to get it or keep it. Clarence Page. The following untitled poem was originally composed according to her notes on March 15, 1963, when Leonida McLean was 11 years old. What becomes of the lonely? What will become of me? Shall I burn in flames of fire or drown within the sea? What becomes of the lonely? What will become of me? Shall I pick the flower of life or be stung by its bee? What does become of the lonely? What will become of me? Why doesn't someone tell me? Why won't they let me see? What does become of the lonely? What will become of me? The door of happiness is locked. Doesn't someone have the key? I have yet to find. I have yet to see. What becomes of the lonely? What will become of me? The following poem was not dated, but must have been written during Leonida McLean's later working years after she moved to the city's mostly white, upper-class north side lakefront and became a regular writer of the number 151 bus. Fourth Press and Holy Game apparently refer to the Fourth Presbyterian Church and Holy Name Cathedral downtown. Of a Son Mourn on the 151, here they come, on their way to Fourth Pres or Holy Game. Wonder what these moneyed folk, or think they're moneyed folk, pray for. Peace in our time? For most of them, time will run out next week. All the rich little old ladies and their nurses, they look at you thinking, won't you let a poor little old lady sit down? My thoughts answer back. 
Tell that to my grandmother who died scrubbing your floors. We all settle in for the ride. They all think the nigger bus drivers are crazy because they sing to themselves or because they say things that they couldn't have said. Only yesterday. I can't understand you, young man, they whine. 25 cents on Sunday, he says a third time. I'm sorry. A quarter, a quarter. Oh, a quarter? It lingers in the air. The nigger bus driver and I exchange smirks because we know all black folks are crazy. The following untitled poem was dated May 1st, 1973, when Leonida McLean was 21 years old. Why do I need a husband, mama, when I can have everyone else's traipsing through the fields of nonchalance? I stop at intervals to turn a stone and find a man. I hold the stone to my breast, a much needed rest for us both. Oh, miserable men of lovely, nagging wives, always their eyes look homeward. Race. McLean's racial consciousness found its way into just about everything she wrote. Of all the attributes that make us what we are, McLean felt none is more important than race in determining our chances to succeed in life. The emotional language that often enriched her views of urban politics, for example, came in part because of her profound disappointment over the way Chicago treated its first black mayor compared to his white predecessors. But she wrote numerous columns that explored in an intriguing way the question of race itself, how we view it and how it affects us. When we were in Europe and Africa, she quotes James Baldwin, there were no white people or black people. After blacks came to America, it was not sufficient for both groups to simply call each other white or black. Her painfully ironic column about the light-skinned California political candidate who called himself black only to have his blackness challenged by a darker-hued political opponent, says volumes about the inherent contradictions of America's racial standards. And while many social scientists come forth with observations that class is outpacing race as a determinant of one's life chances, McLean constantly reminds us that race at all class levels remains too important a determinant to be casually put aside. Newsweek, October 13, 1980. The Middle Class Blacks Burden. I am a member of the black middle class who has had it with being patted on the head by white hands and slapped in the face by black hands for my success. Here's a discovery that too many people still find startling. When given equal opportunities at white-collar pencil pushing, blacks want 
the same things from life that everyone else wants. These include the proverbial dream house, two cars, an above average school, and a vacation for the kids at Disneyland. We may in fact want these things more than other Americans because most of us have been denied them so long. Meanwhile, a considerable number of the folks we left behind in the old country, commonly called the ghetto, and the militants we left behind in their antiquated ideology can't berate middle-class blacks enough for forgetting where we came from. We have forsaken the revolution. We are told we have sold out. We are Oreos, they say black on the outside, white within. The truth is, we have not forgotten. We would not dare. We are simply fighting on different fronts and are no less war-weary and possibly more heartbroken, for we know the black and white worlds can meld, that there can be a better world. It is impossible for me to forget where I came from, as long as I am prey to the jive hustler who does not hesitate to exploit my childhood friendship. I am reminded, too, when I go back to the old neighborhood in fear and have my purse snatched. And when I sit down to a business lunch and have an old classmate wait on my table. I recall the girl I played dolls with who now rears five children on welfare. The boy from church who is in prison for murder. The pal found dead of a drug overdose in the alley where we once played tag. My life abounds in incongruities. Fresh from a vacation in Paris, I may, a week later, be on the Milk Run Trailways bus in deep south backcountry, attending the funeral of an ancient uncle whose world stretched only 50 miles and who never learned to read. Sometimes, when I wait at the bus stop with my attache case, I meet my aunt getting off the bus with other cleaning ladies on their way to do my neighbor's floors. But I am not ashamed. Black progress has surpassed our greatest expectations. We never even saw much hope for it, and the achievement has taken us by surprise. In my heart, however, there is no safe distance from the wretched past of my ancestors or the purposeless present of some of my contemporaries. I fear such a fate can reclaim me. I am not comfortably middle class. I am uncomfortably middle class. I have made it, but where? Racism still dogs my people. There are still communities in which crosses are burned on the lawns of black families who have the money and grit to move in. What a hollow victory we have won when my sister, dressed in her designer everything, is driven to the rear door of the luxury high-rise in which she lives because the cab driver, noting only her skin color, assumes she is the maid.
or the nanny or the cook, but certainly not the lady of any house at this address. I have heard the immigrants bootstrap tales, the simplistic reproach of why can't you people be like us? I have fulfilled the entry requirements of the American middle class, yet I am left at times feeling unwelcome and stereotyped. I have overcome the problems of food, clothing, and shelter, but I have not overcome my old nemesis prejudice. Life is easier. Being black is not. I am burdened daily with showing whites that blacks are people. I am, in the old vernacular, a credit to my race. I am my brother's keeper and my sister's, though many of them have abandoned me because they think that I have abandoned them. I run a gauntlet between two worlds, and I am cursed and blessed by both. I travel, observe, and take part in both. I can also be used by both. I am a rope in a tug of war. If I am a token in my downtown office, so am I at my cousin's church tea. I assuage white guilt. I disprove black inadequacy and prove to my parents' generation that their patience was indeed a virtue. I have a foot in each world, but I cannot fool myself about either. I can see the transparent deceptions of some whites and the bitter hopelessness of some blacks. I know how tenuous my grip on one way of life is and how strangling the grip of the other way of life can be. Many whites have lulled themselves into thinking that race relations are just grand because they were the first on their block to discuss crabgrass with the new black family. Yet too few blacks and whites in this country send their children to school together, entertain each other, or call each other friend. Blacks and whites dining out together draw stares. Many of my co-workers see no black faces from the time the train pulls out Friday evening until they meet me at the coffee machine Monday morning. I remain a novelty. Some of my liberal white acquaintances pat me on the head, hinting that I am a freak, that my success is less a matter of talent than of luck and affirmative action. I may live among them, but it is difficult to live with them. How can they be sincere about respecting me, yet hold my fellows in contempt? And if I am silent when they attempt to, serve, to sever me from my own, how can I live with myself? Whites won't believe I remain culturally different. Blacks won't believe I remain culturally the same. I need only look in the mirror to know my true allegiance. And I am painfully aware, even with my off-white trappings, I am prejudged by my color. As for the envy of my own people, am I to give up my career, my standard of living, 
to pacify them and set my conscience at ease? No. I have worked for these amenities and deserve them, though I can never enjoy them without feeling guilty. These comforts do not make me less black nor oblivious to the woe in which many of my people are drowning. As long as we are denigrated as a group, no one of us have made it. Inasmuch as we all suffer for every one left behind, we all gain for everyone who conquers the hurdle. August 9th, 1981. When blacks journey abroad, green is beautiful. In Morocco, a few years ago, Chicago optometrist Dr. Charles Payne found himself the only black in a group of tourists, not an unusual circumstance for the globe-hopping doctor. Enraptured by the historic splendor of a fortress, he was jolted from his reverie when a native rushed through the crowd to confront him. Enraptured by the historic splendor of a fortress, he was jolted from his reverie when a native rushed through the crowd to confront him. Brother, brother, they have captured you, the excited Moroccan exclaimed. Apparently, Payne says his would-be emancipator study of United States history had stopped short of Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. Many black travelers bring home such priceless souvenirs, tales of the innocence abroad about U.S. race relations, of cases of mistaken identity, or of our own misapprehensions about being a August 9th, 1981. When blacks journey abroad, green is beautiful. In Morocco, a few years ago, Chicago optometrist Dr. Charles Payne found himself the only black in a group of tourists, not an unusual circumstance for the globe-hopping doctor. Enraptured by the historic splendor of a fortress, he was jolted from his reverie when a native rushed through the crowd to confront him. Brother, brother, they have captured you, the excited Moroccan exclaimed. Apparently, Payne says his would-be emancipator study of United States history had stopped short of Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. Many black travelers bring home such priceless souvenirs, tales of the innocence abroad about U.S. race relations, of cases of mistaken identity, or of our own misapprehensions about being accepted. Once, taken for Italian by a hotel desk clerk in Moscow, I was struck by the wondrous realization that, for once, my skin color held no clue to my ancestry. Instead, it has proven a curiosity, an attraction of sorts, among foreigners, rather than a signal to withdraw, as is often the case in my own backyard. Whites may grow up looking Greek or Irish or Polish, but with rare exceptions, the experience of blacks has been that. Whatever our nationality or heritage, we are simply black. So thoroughly 
have we understood this fact of life. So insistent are we all, black and white, and reinforcing it daily, that for a black, even one who is green-eyed and freckled, as I am, to be taken for Italian is one for the books, even when it happens in the Soviet Union. Such stories bring to mind the perhaps apocryphal tale of the black man who affected a British accent, majestic robes, and dazzling headdress to travel in the Old South. Posing as an African prince, he slept in the finest suites, in the finest hotels, and consumed the most lavish meals in the most discriminating restaurants. Wherever he went, he received the highest courtesies from unsuspecting whites who never noticed the laughter in his eyes. Because blacks are accustomed to the disquieting stares of rubes when we so much as venture to a remote shopping mall at home, we automatically pack our guard as carefully as our Michelin guide when we go abroad. It usually turns out to be excess baggage. Most of us soon learn that in the eyes of foreigners, we are Americans first, meaning bigger feet, bigger appetites, and bigger pocketbooks, and blacks second. On the other hand, according to Lathani Jones, a member of the social work faculty at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, foreigners often have been mistaken for a Sudanese in Egypt, an American Indian in Turkey, and some kind of African in Denmark. In Jordan, she was pressed to stop being coy and speak Arabic. In East Africa, everyone thought she was a Ghanaian from West Africa. In West Africa, she says, you just keep quiet and blend in. Even when blacks fit into the epidermal rainbow, as we do in the Caribbean, Latin America, or Africa, we may be culturally conspicuous. As one cordial Tanzanian professor put it most succinctly to my journalist husband, you are a separate tribe. When turistos of our tribe stroll through Mexico's marketplaces, savvy vendors hawking the standard onyx chest sets, giant sequence sombreros, and silver jewelry change their accents. Hey, soul brother. Hey, soul sister, comes the hustle. They know that ultimately all Americans come in only one color, green. Amusing as such experiences can be, they aren't always pleasant. Strolling in Toledo during her visit to Spain, a young black school teacher was immobilized when a little girl ran up, pointing and calling out to her mother, Negrina, Negrina. No translation was needed. In Spain, one forgives a child who may never have seen a black person, but a black army officer had a similar experience in North Dakota. The world is smaller than we think. Utility executive Donald Duster, a former state economic development director, who has toured 30 countries, was pulled aside and briefly questioned as he deplaned in Tel Aviv. 
dressed in his grubbies and hiding behind his foster grants, he came to realize he may have looked a little too much like an Arab. Duster's most trying experiences, however, have been traveling by air, seated among white American passengers. Their mouths gape, he says, at the thought of a black person other than a sports star or musician is actually setting out to see the world or imagine that can afford to travel. Another irony that black travelers have observed is that people who wouldn't want you living next door at home suddenly become good friends when they need you and you need them to say decipher the Paris Metro. Racial sensitivity makes blacks keenly aware when they find themselves the only one in the crowd. A curious camaraderie thus develops among blacks traveling abroad. On the seemingly mile-long moving sidewalks in Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, my husband and I impulsively waved to a black couple who were being conveyed in the opposite direction. Just as naturally and spontaneously, they returned the greeting with ready understanding. Even at home, many blacks won't travel to out-of-the-way places for fear of there not being any black folks there. It wasn't so long ago that we traveled by this instinct, carrying a list of places that catered to coloreds, and knowing there would be a relative waiting at the bus terminal with timetable nervously in hand. Such memories die hard. Lathoni Jones, who describes herself as a citizen of the world, sees the provincialism in black people that still limits their travel to safe places, particularly the Caribbean. Indeed, before jetting to Australia, I was warned by my father, among other elders, that they don't like our kind there. He went so far as to suggest that I act the part of maid to my white Australian traveling companion. Come now, they don't like our kind anywhere, I said, only half in jest and settled in for the 20-hour flight from Chicago. My fears lasted only as long as it took me to hit the streets of downtown Sydney, where the clamor and bustle was dotted with dark-skinned Fijians, and even a brother clad in a dashiki, ah, shades of the 60s, and carrying a monstrous box that blared the latest pop. There were so few stairs during our four weeks' travel in Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne, and Brisbane that in time I stopped looking for them. My companion, 20 years removed from her homeland and easily as apprehensive as I had been, gladly discarded her worries too. On occasion, a black traveler may be less conscious of the racial difference than white companions. An official of the Chicago Council of Foreign Relations tells of a black woman in China whose appearance whose appearance halted bicycle traffic in Peking. As the Chinese braked and stared, the woman's concerned companions 
sought to set her at ease. The newly awakened Chinese, they suggested, had never seen a black person before. But the woman noticed something familiar about those stairs. It's these, she suddenly asserted, pointing to her blouse. It wasn't her blackness, but her more than ample bosom that had the tiny Chinese aghast. Black hair, naturally, is another point of foreign intrigue. A black woman who arrived in Greece was stopped by security agents who frisked her mammoth afro in search of a knife. On a grimy jam-packed bus in Lima and again at a party in Australia, strangers who pawed my hair were not, I was sure, observing a local greeting custom. Because I ordinarily wear my hair straight, but travel with an afro, for convenience, I've spent some tense moments in immigration trying to explain that the woman on the passport photo and I were one and the same. In Denmark, one summer, Jones and her 11-year-old daughter, both Afro-coiffed, were subjected to stares everywhere. Her daughter felt so threatened by the attention that she asked if she could walk behind her mother. Her fears were allayed one morning when one gawker finally burst with, Your hair, it's so beautiful. This is not to say that the United States has a monopoly on prejudice based on skin color. The abuses of black GIs abroad and of the offspring some leave behind our legend. In England, East and West Indians alike charge that they are victims of a frightening hate campaign by skinheads, pocky bashers, and other facet thugs. Even American blacks are the occasional victims of such local biases until they brandish the great equalizer, the U.S. passport and its promise of dollars. Businessman Duster is certain he was tailed once in South Africa, and, American or no, he stood helpless at a curb waiting for a taxi licensed to carry blacks. One couple still recall quite bitterly the disrespect they were subjected to in Portugal. The natives were more than friendly, however, upon learning that they were American and not among the wave of Angolan refugees. Apart from the tribulations black travelers encounter abroad, we sense that we are truly a breed apart when we encounter otherwise hospitable foreigners who fail entirely to understand the empathy black Americans feel for other people of color. As black Americans struggle to form a global bond based on a common heritage of oppression, others set us apart. White South Africans fail to see the irony when they invite black Americans to a dinner that a black South African would be worthy only to serve. The Aussie who wants to talk American politics and to joke about who really drives on the wrong side of the road finds it difficult to make a connection between the black experience in America and his own dismal record with the Aborigines. 
The embraces I exchanged with a group of Aborigines on first meeting them took my white Australian acquaintances by surprise. The Aborigines, about a dozen of them, had been camped out in tents for about four months in a land rights protest atop Capitol Hill in Canberra. It was an old-fashioned sit-in, complete with soul handshakes all around, and I felt right at home. Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one, uh, just wrapped up. Uh, We will pick up, uh, for people who have a hard copy of the book, uh, we'll be on chapter or page 19. I don't suppose there are not really chapters in the book, uh, but it'll be page 19, and the next article is uh, the new insidious, uh, excuse me, the insidious new racism, the insidious new racism. That's what we'll pick up at uh, for the second audio segment. Folks would like to participate. The number to dial is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you do not want to use your phone to dial in, you can use the free Vope line. It's linked at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, if you need the address, it is tiny, T I N Y dot CC forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, that address again, tiny, T I N Y dot CC forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, when you put that address in, Click the link on the left of the page. It says free vote dialer or free uh, vote call in. Uh, just click that. It'll open a small window on your screen. Top line, it is a drop down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. Next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is 564 564- Nine four three. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can use a real name, nickname, press random keys, whatever you are comfortable with. Once you get all that entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the live broadcast. You should be able to hear us. It is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. Uh, when you do that, You will hear an audio prompt to press the number one. I'll see your hand on the switchboard and we will get you on the call. Uh, Great to be on a new book. This book is not that long, so uh, we won't be on it too long. And we might even be doing uh, medical apartheid next up. So that would be uh, when we voted at the beginning or I guess the end of 2015, we voted. Listeners voted on the new book. Uh, I think we will have taken all of the top three choices if we get to do medical apartheid next. And we will have gone in reversed order. So the third most popular choice was the half has never been told. The second uh, most popular choice was uh, a foot 
in each world that we're doing now. And then the number one choice was medical apartheid. And it is a very lengthy book, but uh, we'll have them in reverse order. We will have knocked them all out. So uh, we should have satisfied at least a nice chunk of listeners who uh, participate in the book club. That said, uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, who would like to chime in. Uh, let's see. Uh, we should have Thomas in New York. Uh, Mr. I think that's Roz, and I will nab other hands as I see them. Uh, your lines are all open. Feel free to chime in. Got Mr. Demery for as well. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, greetings to you, Gus. Um, greetings to uh, Mr. Demery and Thomas in New York and all the other calls and listeners. Um, Wow, this uh, this sister really went through quite a bit, and it really brings home in a lot of ways how painful um, it is when we, as black people, abuse one another. Um, she, I think the title, uh, A Foot in Each World, is so appropriate because she seemed to be walking a tightrope between her own people, black people thinking that she wasn't black enough because she quote unquote made it. And then of course she's not white at all in a system of racism, white supremacy. So they're never going to accept her and her confusion. She seemed to be quite confused um, with, with both how black people treated her as well as how white people uh, mistreated her as well. And um, there's a couple of really salient uh, points here there was one uh, section on page seven where she says, I'm a member of the black middle class who has had it with being patted on my head by white hands and slapped in the face by black hands for my success. And to me, it really, and she wrote this as she wrote in her blunt manifesto, it really speaks to like the deep, the really deeply layered, uh, the type of layers of racism, white supremacy she was experiencing and how it acutely manifested and how black people mistreated her. And, um, and I think that was probably even in a lot of ways worse for her to deal with as a black person, because I've seen, I've gone through quite a bit of that myself um, and my wife and my family as well, um, um, being mistreated by our own people. And it's, and in some cases, uh, people extremely close to you, family members, and it can be viscerally painful. And she kind of brings that home in her writing. Um, on the same page, she wrote uh, a little bit further down, more than 100 pieces of mail streamed in from as far away as South Africa, where a Cape Town newspaper had reprinted the column, editing out, interestingly enough, a line that referred to how her dilemma was not unique to the United States. And that just stood out like it was highlighted. The reason why is because it really speaks to the fact that racism, white supremacy is a global system and that there was a conscious effort for blacks in South Africa not to make the connection between their experiences with the Boers there or the African Afrikaners there and our experiences with racist white supremacists in America. And I think that's a big thing because even uh, Minister Malcolm talked about the fact that when he would travel, um, based on the way that the media would project race relations at that time, a lot of people he encountered abroad had, were really under the assumption that we were making such great headway. And when he would go out and actually speak to these audiences and really discuss the realities of what was happening, in a lot of ways they were shocked. And it really brings, excuse me, brings home the fact that uh, 
the, the media machine is really all about the propaganda of disinformation and keeping us as black people disconnected about the global system. This again brings up, uh, brings to my memory, uh, Dr. Wilson, God rest and bless her soul eternally because she really brought that home. The fact that, uh, there is a lack of a global understanding of this system. And as a result, it, it's not informing a shift in our behavior on a conscious level, um, regardless of what aspects of racism, white supremacy we choose to fight. Um, I would just say utilizing uh, Neely Fuller's work in regards to picking and choosing aspects of things as far as the independent code that you're going to personally practice. And I was listening to uh, episode 30 when she appeared on the program earlier today, and she, she, uh, she was talking to one of the callers a female caller, and she discussed how powerful the behavior shift in one person can be. And this book really brings home that, uh, that, that sentiment uh, quite emphatically for me. Um, on the following page on eight, she has a brief section that says, in the summer of 1983, her bitter account in the Washington Post headlined, How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites, of how betrayed she felt by whites she thought to be more reasonable touched off a flurry of controversy locally and nationally. And that just brought home something that we've talked about quite a bit, that there's no such thing as good white people. Um, and the fact that, again, it shows her confusion with the fact that she was thinking better of these people. And in reality, they were no different than any, any staunch white supremacist that was in the KKK. Um, also, the poem that she wrote that was started on page 9 and ended on page 10 about what becomes of the lonely, what will become of me, it really goes to show how depressed she was at such a young age to be 11 years old and, and, and writing about uh, such terribly sad things and even writing about death and all of this kind of stuff really brings home um, just what young black people might be going through when they may not fully understand what they're experiencing. Um, I know it happened to me and it made me quite fatalistic, quite rest reckless, and um, it facilitated me running the street at a very young age um, and taking out my frustration with what I was dealing with. And as I started to understand that as a black male, you know, I was more likely to die than anything else. It really gave me a fatalistic outlook. And I, uh, her poetry um, really resonated with me on a personal level, just from personal experiences with just being depressed and expressing itself in a fatalistic, um, very violent um outlook on the world. And, um, it was just, it was just very poignant for me. Um, she, another thing she said that was brilliant was on uh, page 12. There's a brief sentence where she said of all the attributes that make us what we are, McLean felt none is more important than race in determining our chances to succeed in life. So, I mean, she, she really understood that race trumps everything. Um, and I think that's something that we as black people really don't fully grasp. Sometimes we tend to um, sometimes think of white people as people and not think of them as a collective system of terrorists that basically revel in the destruction of black life. Um, Dr. Wilson was saying, you know, each time, you know, a white person doesn't give a black person a job f because of their color, that they're committing an act of violence. They're killing black people. Um, and she just went through a list of different things within the system of white supremacy that happened to us that are different aspects of killing our people. And it doesn't necessarily always manifest as a physical death, but it's that psychological terror of where, where am I going to make my, get, um, get my money from to take care of my family? How am I going to pay for the roof over my head or to keep the lights on? And we don't look at those things as deaths, but they are forms of death. 
because it really gives us a, a, a deep understanding that as black people, we really have no control over just about any aspect of our lives. And that is no different than what our ancestors experienced 500 years ago to what we're experiencing now or even five minutes ago. Um, and I just found that to be very important. Um, on the following page, she said, uh, she's, wow, she said, what a hollow victory we have won when my sister dressed in her designer everything is driven to the rear door of the luxury rise in which she lives because the cab driver noting only her skin color assumes she is the maid or the nanny or the cook but certainly not the lady of any house at this address again it just states no matter how far you make it um you will always be a nigger to these people and it reminded me of um michael jordan one time he was on oprah winfrey this was like in in his heyday um when he was the michael jordan and he talked about uh, one time he was traveling, he went to the airport and he was waiting for his plane. And he said a white man literally walked up to him and dropped his bags at Michael Jordan's feet, assuming that he was a sky cap. And when Michael Jordan basically turned his nose up and looked at him like he was trash for even assuming that he was a sky cap, you know, the guy got frustrated and snatched his bags and he was, and he basically said to Oprah, you know, no matter I'm Michael Jordan and I'm still treated like a nigga essentially without saying a word on TV, you knew exactly what he was implying. And that really, um, that spoke, that stood out to me as well. Um, then on page 14, I'm almost done on page 14. Um, she said, some of my liberal white acquaintances patted me, pat me on the head, hinting that I'm a freak, that my success is less a matter of talent than of luck and affirmative action. I may live among them, but it is difficult to live with them. How can they be sincere about respecting me yet hold my fellows in contempt? And if I am silent when they attempt to sever me from my own, how can I live with myself? Um, again, this speaks to the fact that there's no such thing as good white people. A liberal white person is nothing less than a more refined racist white supremacist who has a better handle on being subtle in their approach to abusing black people. Um, also, it, I found it very fascinating that on the following page, she said, as long as we are denigrated as a group, no one of us has made it in as much as we all suffer for everyone who, excuse me, for everyone left behind, we all gain for everyone who conquers the hurdle. And it just spoke to the fact that for all the pain, all the anti-blackness that she suffered, she stood steadfast in her love of herself and her love and concern for her people. And um, that's something that I take away from just from this program as well, because I look at my father and growing up, he took us to all kinds of events uh, fighting for the liberation of uh, black people in, in Africa when, when they were becoming liberated in the 80s and fighting for their freedom. And um, I remember one time I had a conversation with him and he was just so hurt by all the anti-blackness he experienced. He's now uh, just, just turned 73 recently. And he basically said he's tired of black people. He was just done. And, and he's never really gone back, you know, as far as just his mindset has just remained that way. And I think it's going to remain that way till the day he dies. And it was um, very sad for me to, to hear him say that because um, for me, he was my role model. And he was one of the main reasons that I, I write um, to fight racism and white supremacy. I write about African history and culture to try and help my people. And he was the biggest driver force for that, though he spent very little time in my life. That was one of the biggest impacts he made on me. And that's something that I carry with me. Um, so it's, it's just, I, I find her to be very special just for the fact that she was able to stand so strong in, in the midst of such pain and suffering as well. And um, when she discusses 
on the following page 16, she says that uh, because blacks are accustomed to disquiet to the disquieting stairs of rooms, we uh, when we so much as venture to a remote shopping mall at home, we automatically pack out our guard as carefully as our Michelin guide when we go abroad. It usually turns out to be excess baggage. Most of us soon learn that in the eyes of the foreigners, we are Americans first, meaning bigger feet, bigger appetites, bigger pocketbooks, and black second. That reminded me of my own relatives. Um, just the fact that my parents moved to America um, when we traveled to Trinidad, it's assumed that we're just the money people and people come out the woodworks, you know, asking for money and financial assistance and you want to help as many people as you can, but you just don't have it. And when they don't always understand the fact that we're struggling just as much as they're struggling there is just a little bit different. Um, sometimes you end up losing family members because they get angry at you and they assume that you, you, you're being stingy or whatever the case may be. And it's only those relative, relatives that have come to stay with us for six months if they're on vacation and whatnot, they get to see the daily struggles of the reality of what living in America is really like. And some, sometimes even those relatives still don't care. They still assume that your money bags and they still want to, you know, drain you dry. But it's just the idea that she's absolutely right when you travel abroad in a lot of ways. They think of you as, um, as money. The same thing happened when I went to Egypt. And um, on the following paragraph, she actually says, on the other hand, according... Hang, hang tight one second. I want to just make sure we nab everybody. Oh, uh, sure, sure. Chance. I'm sorry. Well, no, okay. no apologies needed. No apologies. We'll probably have time where you can get the rest in about uh, what was on the next paragraph, too. Uh, Thomas in New York, Mr. Uh, Demery Ford, did either of you all uh, have commentary you want to make sure you got in as well? Yes, ma'am, you heard? Yes, sir. Okay, yes. Greetings, Gus. Uh, greetings to Roz, uh, Thomas in New York, or whoever may be listening. Uh, I kind of wanted to uh, hang back and hear some of the other comments because it's <clears throat> perplexing to me at first, you know, to find out that... Uh, a journalist, you know, of this capacity and this potential, you know, uh, committed suicide, took her own life. And then this book, when I went to look for the book at the local library, it was uh, a reference book, you know, so they kept it in the Sojourner Truth Room where you couldn't take it out. You just had to read it there in the library. And then I start to think, you know, maybe this is a very important text because, you know, in a predominantly black county, you know, we're restricted from reading uh, material, you know, so I had a particular interest in it. And then come to find out it's a conglomerate of essays that she wrote. And I think that better than listening to other people give their views about who she was, Leonetta McLean, uh, mostly through her writing, we can come to a conclusion of uh, basically, I guess, what she was trying to say, her development, and then ultimately why she chose to end her life. But uh, kudos to black journalism, 
you know, getting the word out, you know, to people is, uh, you know, of the utmost importance. You know, she mentioned such words as uh, soul out. You know, that's why on this program and in counter-racism, we know that words are important. And then we try not to use certain words because uh, we're all victims. And depending on your degree of victimization, then you have some rights to whatever response you have to the system of white supremacy. But uh, when she started to talk about race, you know, in the first article, you know, she did a comparison on, uh, I believe it was Harold, Harold Washington was the first black mayor of Chicago in contrast with probably Mayor Daly, I believe, was probably his predecessor. And, you know, if you know anything about Chicago and the Daly machine and and the way that that uh, a white supremacy is, you know, uh, all, it's all permeating throughout the politics in Chicago, you'll know that uh, that, you know, is not a fair comparison. Uh, Harold Washington had, you know, his hands full, but, you know, he did a great job. I just find that, uh, uh, I guess it's noteworthy that she has uh, some class consciousness, but uh, like Ross was saying, it seems like a lot of confusion there because if you start out, you go to college and you're thinking about making it. And like on page 14, she said, I've made it, but where? And then you start to become class conscious, you know, where you fit in society. But if you keep it simple and realize that, you know, you are in a system that is designed for your demise and that anything that you do get out of the system from cooperating with it in whatever way, you know, you have to uh, just accept, you know, what uh, is happening to you because it's really not that much you can do about it. When she talked about middle-class black burdens, she said that I'm burdened daily with showing whites that blacks let me see if I can find that. That uh, showing whites that, well, anyway, it boils down to uh, that is something that is a useless task because it says whites won't believe that I'm culturally different. Blacks won't believe that I remain culturally the same. Um, you know, in my life, I hadn't given much 
thought about, you know, what people thought about what I was doing. I was mostly trying to figure out what's going on with this system myself, you know, and I think that if you get caught up in what someone else think about you, then you're going to come out on the losing end because you're in a system that is designed against you. And then at last on page 15, when she was talking about blacks uh, journeying abroad and green being beautiful, and I assume that green had to do with the color of her eyes, but when she encountered the Australian Aborigines and they were protesting land rights, and when she introduced herself and with the hugs and, you know, she felt right at home because of what the city ends and everything that would been going on back in the state. I think that, uh, you know, she's beginning to realize that uh, it's a global influence. Racism has a global influence and it's all part of the system of white supremacy. I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call, girl. Yes, sir. Uh, Thomas in New York should be there. And uh, just the mayor before uh, Harold Washington. Uh, Harold Washington was mayor from 83 to 87 in Chicago. Uh, the previous mayor was Jane Byrne, a uh, white female Jane Byrne. She was the mayor before uh, Richard Daly came a few years down the road. Uh, Thomas in New York, did you have a commentary you wanted to add? Yeah, I also believe um, a lot of said that the guy was murdered, too. Um Mr. Washington, Chicago. Um, good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Um, yeah, I didn't want to just jump in and start talking about this this one either because it was a lot said that I didn't agree with. Um, you know, I firmly agree with um, she had a part. I don't have the book, but um, I'm just following along. Um, she mentioned um, not giving up her seat to a, a white person, and she thought about, um, I think, her grandmother or her aunt who died, you know, mopping and cleaning and scrubbing their floors or whatever. And I totally agree with that. You know, I don't care if you're old, young, pregnant, handicapped, fat, midget, blind. I'm, you know, I'm not giving you my seat. I totally agree with that. Um, um, I don't agree with the way she was positioned in the anti-blackness as far as, um, and I think Roz kind of read this uh, statement. It was like um, whites would pet her. And blacks would slap her in the face. And, um, you know, I just don't agree with that. Um, simply because, you know, I, just to give you a brief example, I was, um, I don't think that has to do with class. Uh, I was in um, New Jersey today, and I was at with my mother, and she was watching um, Wendy Williams. And they had a former NBA player, Jay Williams, on. And um, he was talking about his depression as an NBA player. Um, and it was concluded to him um, having um, a motorcycle injury that ended his career very young. But he was a uh, Duke-educated, well-spoken, well-articulated. He graduated in three years, you know, became an NBA player. And he said the other players on the teams, in particular uh, on the team he was on, the Chicago Bulls, in particular Jalen Rose, would call him a sellout and an Uncle Tom. And, I mean, they, these guys are all rich and successful, you know. So I don't think it cuts the course class, you know. I mean, I think that it's some people from the upper class that could come to the lower class 
and fit right in. And it's like, you know, they don't, they don't suspect anything funny with that person. There's some people that come and they do. So maybe she was just one of those people. Um, I didn't agree with her American dream. Um, I think the American dream that she described was not the American dream that black people want. I think it's the American dream that white people want and aspire to get. Um, the black Americans, um, dream should be, you know, justice and equality. But I find that we dream mostly about, um, acceptance within the society and white validation more so than, um, the white picket fists, the two kids and the, the car and the garage. I mean, I think that uh, the majority of blacks would just accept the acceptance from whites and that would be their, their dream fulfilled. I just didn't agree with that. Um, I don't think all Americans are green, just black Americans. Um, I don't know if she meant all Americans were green when they go overseas or just black people in particular. But um, I still think that um, wherever whites go, they're treated way better than blacks, no matter if they have the same amount of money or less. Um, and it's um, also, you know, the last, my last point I'll make, um, traveling to other places, um, you know, I do the same thing. I hope that it's other black people there. I don't want to be nowhere where there's going to be all whites. I'm, I'm totally in fear of that. I don't even like going to white neighborhoods. Um, so I totally, you know, when she said that I was cracking up, um, you know, because I totally, you know, totally see you know when you go out of state or you're going out of the country or whatever you want to go someplace that usually other black people went to and said hey i had a good time there there was other people like me there you don't want to go somewhere where you're going to be the only negro you know i'll meet my mind thank you for sure for sure uh there uh any black female uh listeners uh tuning in great to hear your thoughts on this uh, as well, uh, folks recognize the narrator. I call her uh, in Michigan, chipped in to do uh, the narration. Super appreciate uh, her time and energy uh, to give us a great narration for uh, the book uh, thus far. Uh, glad I didn't have to read it. Um, before I even get to, to my commentary, uh, just the term middle class uh, came up so much, and that is in the word guide. Interestingly, there are many terms uh, that she uses that are in Mr. Fuller's uh, word guide, including the American dream. Uh, but Mr. Fuller, he writes about the term middle class. He says, do not use this term. Do not try to find or produce words that describe a black middle class or words that describe black middle class values. As long as white supremacy exists, speak of the classes of people of the known universe as the powerful class and the powerless class. As long as white supremacy exists, think, speak and act as if all black people function as part of the powerless class. This means that during the existence of white supremacy, the black or non-white people of the known universe function with less power than the white people who practice white supremacy. The black and non-white people function as victims of the powerful, excuse me, the Black and non-white people function as victims of the powerful class. All of the white people of the known universe who participate in the practice of white supremacy are members of the powerful class. There are no classes of victims of white supremacy. Victims of white supremacy are simply victims of white supremacy. From the word guide, Mr. Neely Fuller Jr. Uh, I will say, I probably repeated 
uh, every week. It'll definitely be in the description uh, for all the episodes moving forward. Metaphors. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> they are they are astronomical. Uh, and, and the two main points uh, with metaphor. I mean, this is this is the reason the Saturday program. I don't say this for any other program. People want to use metaphors to articulate themselves as fine. It's only the compensatory call in where I say this should be one time. Where we make an effort to not use metaphors. And I'm going to have to be a little bit more uh, stringent about that and, and not just trying to be lax because I catch myself. It would be different if I was just doing it for other people. But I you, you all have heard me. I will catch myself. Uh, even if it's repeatedly, if I'm making that error and relying on metaphors and then go back and recalibrate what I say, uh, just number one, sometimes it can be very confusing for people to really understand uh, what it is you're saying. Uh, but also, I encourage people to, to really interrogate and pay attention to metaphors because it can reveal a lot, even if it's if it's not clear, even if the comparison is not accurate. It can reveal a lot about how a person thinks, uh, how they conceptualize. Uh, racism. I mean, you can really learn a lot about uh, just the how a person uh, processes the world, their worldview, their ideology, just by looking at the metaphors uh, that they construct to articulate themselves. And you just got a, a huge one uh, right in the title of the book, Foot in Both Worlds, Massive Metaphor. And I think that that right there tells you a lot, in my view, about some of the problems uh, that she was experiencing and how she conceptualized uh, racism, how she even conceptualized her own existence. I definitely think that's something that we should keep in mind uh, as we move throughout the book. It seems like she's being pretty direct uh, about what she means uh, with that metaphor. And if people want to comment on that as we move down the road through the book, uh, that would be fantastic. Um, when she talks about, uh, or uh, this is not even her, this is her former hub, uh, husband, Clarence Page, black male, also black journalist. Uh, when he talks about her speaking back uh, as a member of the quote unquote black middle class or black bourgeoisie. And she says uh, there's nothing new or uniquely American about uh, quote unquote successful blacks receiving abuse from black militants, whatever that means. Algerian philosopher Franz Fanon, for example, chided the black bourgeoisie of French colonies. Uh, when I read that, I was I was even taken aback for a minute uh, when they were talking about France Fanon, like, is he part of the black middle class or, and I, I, I interpreted from this, I guess he's a, supposed to be a part of the uh, quote unquote black militants. Uh, Fanon did marry a white person. Cowbell would ring there. Um, but I just, I think a lot of times we end up in a lot of confusion and I've seen a lot of debates and arguments and there are tons of books uh, about quote unquote black middle class and black quote-unquote middle-class people being in conflict with uh, black quote-unquote lower-class people and I, I think all of that is just a part of racist confusion uh, to keep our focus on other victims of white supremacy uh, and and I would even submit I think it was a great point that Roz made in terms of how much when you have people that are already suffering from uh, lack of mental health and the terrorism that whites inflict upon us uh, that so many so frequently uh, it just adds to the damage uh, and and the trauma that we're going through when we are being abused and subjected to terrorism uh, from other victims uh, that that just adds on to it and, and a lot of times that that just makes us even more angry more upset uh, with what we're dealing with uh, and I think Sometimes we even lose sight that you don't have to be, quote unquote, black middle class, meaning white people have gave you a few extra nickels, an extra bit of cornbread uh, that black people who have nothing frequently are arguing and fighting and having major conflict among them. That happens all the time. Uh, the most important thing to keep in, in, in front of all of us is that the problem is white people 
she I thought it was very important where she was talking about uh, some of the reason that she thought she was able to be successful uh, academically and then uh, in her career, uh, the impact of her black father uh, thought that was uh, hugely uh, important, uh, the role of, of black parents. Uh, and being uh, a strong influence on their children. And whites certainly do a lot to make sure that that uh, is not the case uh, for many, many black children. Uh, On page seven, again, she talks about being in the black middle class. Even that uh, metaphor where she says, I'm a member of the black middle class who has had it with being patted on the head by whites and slapped in the face by black hands for my success. Even that metaphor, I think, is fascinating because I don't think anybody inflicts more violence on black people than whites. Uh, but in that metaphor, it's the whites are, are patronizing her, treating her like a child, patting her on the head metaphor. And then it's the black people that are being violent, slapping her uh, because she is successful. Just fascinating uh, metaphor uh, in my view. I think, again, just it reveals a lot. Uh, and I, if anything, I would say it should encourage us. I think Mr. Uh, Demery Ford brought this up. Very, very important, huge aspect of counter racism to really be patient uh, understanding and how we treat other victims of racism and not trying to do any additional damage uh, to other victims of racism and keeping in mind it doesn't matter um, you know where you happen to be how much you know money you have in the bank or what type of house you have a car you have this is still a black person this is still someone who is being subjected has been and is now being subjected to all kinds uh, of terrorism white people can take all that stuff away from them in the next five minutes uh, to keep that in mind and to, you know, just try to be as patient as you can. Even if you don't uh, want to be around the person or what have you, just try to minimize conflict and not add uh, any trauma by name calling or insulting them. Uh, when she, this is on page 13, really appreciated some of the poetry as well. I thought that was significant. Uh, Roz, I think, touched on that, her writing about death and, and just such powerfully uh, sad issues. I think it's just reflective of, of the system of white supremacy uh, that we're in. I think that's one of the things that makes her uh, writing so profound is that she's uh, so honest and, and puts so much of herself and what she's dealing with, what she sees. Uh, even, you know, the points where people were saying that they don't necessarily have the same view that she did. I think even that is, is significant she, because she's, she's putting her thoughts out there even if it might be that she has some incorrect assessments of racism, white supremacy, it's there. She just puts it out so that she can see. I just think it's it's really powerful writing. And we haven't even got to the essay on how Chicago taught her to hate white people. Uh, but on page 13, uh, where she's talking about uh, a better a better world, uh, where she says, the truth is we have not forgotten. We would not dare. We are simply fighting on different fronts and are no less weary and possibly more heartbroken for we know that black and white worlds can meld there can be a better world i think this is another point where just it is a profound metaphor and i might submit this might be a point of just not accurately understanding what racism white supremacy is and just to be specific not understanding what it means to be white Uh, For white people, the world is supposed to be now and eternally about white domination over non-white people. That is totally incongruent uh, with any conceptualization of how this planet should function. If you are a non-white person and you don't think racism should exist, uh, any and all conceptions that white people have about this planet, the earth, the entire universe are not going to quote unquote male. They are totally uh, in contradiction. Uh, And I think just 
not understanding. And that seems to come through a lot in terms of her thinking that they are reasonable whites, quote unquote, liberal whites. That's another term that's in the word God. Uh, good white people. Uh, I, I might even, you know, interpret that as some white people that are not racist. And I just submit that that is simply not true. And that seems to be a very painful uh, bit of information for people to accept. I could be an error. I would encourage you to do your own uh, research analysis. But I think her essay that is coming up, we won't get to it this week, uh, How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites, will make it very clear what it means to be white. And I think it made it painfully clear for her. And even it seems like some of the people that knew her uh, assert that that essay and the response uh, what the the behavior, the conduct of whites that led her to write that essay and the response of whites to that essay contributed to her self-destruction, uh, which was less than a year after she published that piece. Uh, also, I thought on page 14, again, the metaphor where she says that this was some sort of uh, tug of war between these, quote unquote, two worlds. Uh, between how how just I guess being pulled between white people uh, and non-white people is just a fashion uh, fascinating uh, way to conceptualize and and I think reveals a lot about what she thought what she was experiencing uh, might even go a long way in terms of what Thomas in New York was just talking about in terms of her uh, wanting acceptance from white people and feeling like yes we can get along we can make it we can all we just all have to to contribute and we can we can make this thing go and just not understanding what it means to be white, but I, I just thought that was was fascinating uh, a way to uh, to write that to articulate that to to think of herself as being a rope that's being tugged uh, in these two forces uh, let's see also where she talked on fourteen as well she brought up affirmative action and that is ongoing today black people uh, who have uh, been allowed to get a quality job or some sort. Uh, what they call being a quote-unquote successful black person, saying, oh, you just you know, are allowed to go to school here because of affirmative action. You just got this job because of uh, affirmative action again. Uh, and it's just done, again, to erode yourself uh, black self-respect, uh, that you're not really intelligent, you're not really confident. There was no merit involved with you getting whatever it is that you got. We just allowed you little niggers uh, to get this because you all whined and complained in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and again, all of that, if you have a better understanding of racism, white supremacy, the world that we live in, hey, I expect you all to do this sort of tacky thing. And white women have been the ones who benefited most from affirmative action. You can make sure you get that in uh, to anybody who has the audacity to open their mouth and say such blasphemy uh, on page uh, 15, where she says uh, any of us, I guess, surviving uh, any of us, uh, where she says uh, any of any black person who makes it, quote unquote, uh, is somehow a, a credit uh, to all of us uh, and somehow I'm trying to find exactly on the page where she writes it out I think this is on uh, page 15 make sure I get it as for the envy of my people I am am I to give up my career my standard of living to pacify them and to set my conscience at ease no I have worked for these amenities and deserve them though I can never enjoy them without feeling guilty these comforts do not make me feel less black nor oblivious to the woe in which many of my people are drowning. As long as we are denigrated as a group, no one has made it in as much as we all suffer for everyone left behind. We all gain for everyone who conquers the hurdle. Another metaphor. I hear that. I feel like I hear that all the time. Uh, people, I think, make that assertion with President Obama, Beyonce, Jay, any any black person 
<laughs> managers to get uh, a few nickels or what have you. White people have allowed them uh, to get something. And I, I think that is, is one of the greatest mythologies uh, in the world and is very destructive uh, for us having an accurate understanding of white supremacy racism. It's very easy uh, in any era of racism, white supremacy is very easy uh, for racists to allow one white person to get a big house or a big car or whatever uh, palace, who knows anything, billions of dollars. It's very easy for them to allow that to happen. And then they have all the other Negroes uh, being in total destitution, poverty, suffering and say, well, Hey, you all symbolically are enjoying, or you all got some sort of victory, uh, at least psychologically because president Obama's in the white house or because Muhammad Ali is world champion or Jackie Robinson, uh, is in the major league. I mean, you can just go on and on and on. So William Williams did this or Oprah Winfrey got her show. I mean, they can just point to anything and say, see, you all have made so much progress and nothing could be further from the truth. And I think at some level she understood that. I think that was probably connected to her, her sense of, of guilt uh, or discomfort at, you know, hey, I'm able to, to get a few things. I have a better quality of life. I can travel and do all these things, but I'm around all of this black misery uh, in Chicago. And, you know, I, I just I don't feel good uh, about this, which I think is human. Uh, I think that's the way it should be. But unfortunately, whites, they don't have that feeling. That's what they want. That's what they enjoy. That's the way that they have designed all of this to be. Uh, and I will pause there. Uh, I will say again, if we have any uh, black females who want to get a word in, definitely uh, be good to hear their thoughts uh, as we proceed through this text. Uh, I think she has a lot of commentary that are directed uh, directly to her experience as a black female in the system of white supremacy. So we'd be good to hear from you all. Uh, folks have uh, any other commentary they want to make sure they get in. We have about four minutes left. Uh, I know Raj, you said you had uh, additional commentary you wanted to get in. If, if folks can just be uh, as concise as possible, uh, feel free. Raj, you want to share anything you had left, sir? Sure. Thank you. Um, the, the uh, paragraph on page 16, where she talks about, uh, she said, on the other hand, according to Lasoni Jones, a member of the so social work faculty at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Foreigners often have been mistaken for a Sudanese in Egypt, an American Indian in Turkey, or and some kind of African in Denmark. In Jordan, she was pressed to stop being coy and speak Arabic. In East Africa, everyone everyone thought she was a Ghanaian from West Africa. In West Africa, she says, you just keep quiet and blend in. And I found that really fascinating. It just reminded me of when I um, went to Egypt with my family on an um, African heritage study tour with a, an African historian. And I remember when I got to uh, Cairo, to the airport, the, it was completely, completely run by Arab Egyptians. And they literally kept me, specifically me, for about 45 minutes in the airport, reviewing my, my passport from every angle possible because they had never seen a black person. My name, um, my first name and my middle name are both uh, Arabic. And my last name, of course, is a white person's last name. So they had never seen a so-called Muslim with this white last name. So they, um, they kept me in the airport when I got there. Then when I went to Nubia, or we, when the group went to Nubia, because we were the only black people on the tour, um, all the Nubian people did not call us African-Americans. They called us Nubian Americans. And the treatment that we got from them was starkly different to the treatment that we got from the Arabs in the sense that um, when she talks about uh, being abroad as an American, you look at as green we were approached very parasitically to spend our money by, with these Arab, Arab merchants. Whereas in Nubia, there was such a high level of respect 
and um, just uh, an, an endearment to see another, another black person, especially because we were the only black people traveling throughout the entire area. Everyone else was either uh, European or essentially uh, Asian. They had a, a couple of Japanese uh, tour groups there. So um, just the fact that we were there and we were the only black people there, every time we encountered black people, there was a, a, an immediate gravitation, gravitational pull between us, and I found that to be very fascinating. Um, and that, that was something that I wanted to bring up. And then uh, when she says on uh, 18, she says, even American blacks are the occasional victims of such local biases until they brandish the great equalizer, the U.S. passport, and its, and its uh, promise of dollars. And I just find that to be like the U.S. passport is the passport of white supremacy. Um, essentially, we're telling the world that we come from the greatest uh, bastion of white supremacy that white people ever devised and came up with. And that's the only reason we get any sort of respect that I feel that we do when we do go abroad and encounter other people because of the status that white supremacy carries when you're coming from the United States. And I'll meet my line. Thank you. For sure. For sure. Anybody else have uh, comments they wanted to make sure they get in? We have about two minutes. everybody's content we can go ahead and get to the second audio uh, i was reminded of the green book uh briefly uh, when she talked about uh black people being concerned about traveling and and wanting to have all the information what time is the train going to get there the bus going to get there and having a black person there uh waiting for them anxiously looking at the clock to make sure everything is on schedule uh and i mean that is the logic of racism white supremacy i think anybody if you remember uh the warmth of other sons isabel wilkerson uh the lovely isabel wilkerson uh where she talked about that was exactly what it was like for black people to try to travel uh that you know whites could even snatch you off the train uh, or keep you from getting on the train in the first place uh, for long periods of time uh, in this area of the world that it was uh, taking your lane. Not even to mention, you might not get a place uh, to stay out on the road. Uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Pershing Foster, if folks uh, remember, uh, been with us doing the book club for a while. Um, also, the, the comment, I chuckled slightly when she talked about black people because of that, being leery about traveling uh, either to other so-called countries or even other parts of uh, this area of the world where there are no black people. I laugh because I'm in Seattle and there are not a lot of black people in Washington state, uh, Seattle on the whole, but certainly Washington state. And I remember when I lived in Atlanta, where there are tons and tons and tons of black people and saying that I was thinking about coming to this part of the world. And they said exactly that, like, man, there are no black people up there. There is no way I could be uh, in Seattle. And even, I, Mr. Fuller, I think, talked about that uh, on the program. All of that is a consequence of racism, white supremacy. I can even say being in, in Hawaii. Uh, that it was the same thing. There were not a lot of black people there, uh, and I was not able to figure out why uh, black people, because you have a lot of black people that live in California. It's not that far. You can get cheap flights from California to Hawaii. Not a lot of black people in Hawaii either. Uh, and again, I can just only chalk that up to racism, white supremacy, where they have uh, just forever and continue to make it so difficult uh, for black people to travel, uh, to move around on this earth, just to get things done, whether it's uh, expense or you just get discouraged, traumatized, just really limit uh, our all of our experiences uh, on this planet where they globe trot on and off the planet uh, as deep as the waters go and, and out into what they call space uh, where we have a difficult time even crossing the street. Hmm. 
Uh, with that, I uh, think folks are satisfied. If you have notes that you didn't get to share, just uh, jot them down, your thoughts, and we should have ample time once the second audio segment concludes. Again, we're picking up, if you have the book, we're picking up on page 19, uh, the article, the new, in, uh, excuse me, the insidious new racism. That's the article we're picking up with. Uh, Leonita McLean, A Foot in Each World, narration from our caller in Michigan. Context of white supremacy. First, 1981. The Insidious New Racism Shortly after McLean became prospective editor, she wrote the first of what were then billed as occasional columns. In light of the line that would close her suicide note years later, I will never live long enough to see my people free anyway. The final paragraph of this column is pointly prophetic. Thank you, Pierre de Vici. The controversial, oft-quoted urbanologist, demographic crystal ball gazer, was indefinitely quotable when he charged recently that white politicians deliberately tried to undermine the political potency of black officials by putting them in charge of public agencies that are virtually unsalvageable, sinking ships. He cited as victims Eugene Barnes of the CTA, Chicago Transit Authority, school superintendent Ruth Love, and Dr. James Houghton of the defunct Health and Hospitals Governing Commission that ran Cook County Hospital. The ultimate ulterior motive for this, DeVisi theorized, is to make certain blacks will be blocked in any bid for the mayor's office. In a paper delivered before the Conference on Public Policy for Equal Opportunity and Affirmative Action at the O'Hare Marriott Hotel, DeVisi said, by appointing blacks to preside over failing agencies, white politicians and bureaucrats can achieve two goals. First, they can blame failures not on abandonment by the white middle class, where the blame belongs, but on the supposed greed and incompetence of black officials and workers. Second, they can additionally undermine public respect and confidence in black officials, thereby reducing and retarding the chances of a successful black mayoral candidate in the years ahead. Can white politicals really be so cleverly conspiratorial? Probably so with power at stake, even in those cases where the black community clamors for certain offices. DeVisi said nothing that is new to black people, but a few hosannas went up anyway that a white person actually said what blacks long have believed. His statement was a godsend in much the same way as former Health, Education and Welfare Secretary Joseph Califano's announcement a few years back that racism remained the number one social ill in America. Black people knew that, too. Had a black person made either of these charges, they would have been dismissed with an 
Oh, no, not that racism gripe again. Yes, I'm afraid so. That racism gripe again. Granted, it has been sounded so often without cause that even black people get tired of it. But it is far from licked. As pervasive as it is, racism is nearly impossible to prove. And now it has taken on a new guise. DeVisi provides perfect examples of this new sophisticated racism. Under the new racism, it's okay to let a black woman run the public schools because the students are 80% minority now. And besides, the people who hold the purse strings are white. Leave Eugene Barnes to sink or swim. He's an easy mark. It doesn't matter that education and mass transit are major headaches nationwide. And what of Cook County Hospital? It's just for poor people anyway. Who cares about these agencies as long as large numbers of whites aren't affected? And yet these black officials must be held accountable. The tactic has been applied selectively on a broader scale to whole cities such as Gary and Detroit. So a black is elected as mayor. Let's pull out and leave no economic base, then point fingers. The new racism says, all right, it was wrong all those years to have separate drinking fountains and to reduce blacks to menial labor. So take this job, but don't get promoted. The new racism says, Okay, the law gives blacks the right to live anywhere, but it still doesn't want them next door. Even if it's $700,000 digs in Oak Brook, as in the recent discrimination case won by black businessman William Phillips. How does it differ from the old racism? The old racism wouldn't let blacks into some stores. The new racism assumes that any black person, no matter how well dressed in a store, is probably there to steal, not to buy. The old racism didn't want to educate blacks. The new racism still marvels that some black people actually read books on the bus. The old racism didn't have to address black people. The new racism is left speechless when a black approach condescendingly, has an eloquent comeback. The new racism still cannot handle black people who are as intelligent, diligent, thoughtful, kind, or living as comfortably as whites. The new racism still doesn't accept blacks as full partners in politics, in business, and community life. The new subtle racism may well revert to the old overt racism. Oh no, not that racism gripe again. It took hundreds of years to build it, another hundred even to dent it, and I fear I will not live to see it demolished. November 29th, 1982. The Racial Truth of Politics. Now that the 1983 campaign for mayor is on with a solid black candidate in the running, 
the volume is being alternately turned up and down on the topic of race, which has never exactly been whispered about in the most quarters of the city. It is disquieting that so much energy has been channeled to this subject instead of the more important matters of the financial condition of the city, schools, and housing, or even the innocuous topic of ethnic festivals. Instead of deploring race as a factor, it may be time to face the music and dance. It always has been a factor. Everyone of every hue in this city may at last have to tackle the black-white issue and realize that it is not so black and white. Racism is a two-way street. The black side has its historic points for debate. One cannot be a full-fledged black here without adhering to the beliefs that, one, Riverview was shut down because we started to be more prevalent. Two, the shape the loop is in has less to do with the lousy economy than the fact than with the fact that they wrote it off, headed for North Michigan Avenue and decided to let us have it. And three, no one in power cares about the public schools because only our children attend them. Likewise, no white person here worth his salt would dispute the beliefs that one, when those people move in, it's time to move out. Two, don't ride the L or go downtown after dark because, well, you know. And three, they are taking the best jobs and getting all the social program money. And soon they're going to take over and the city is going to go down the tubes. On that last point, little do whites know that some blacks are looking over their shoulders at the burgeoning Hispanic population, which is expected to outdistance blacks in a decade and thinking, if not saying the same thing. By the way, Hispanics will always be more palatable to whites than blacks, despite similar problems. These points are prickly because, though they are not statements of fact, they are statements of fact about perceptions. The truth hurts. Everyone may be trying to downgrade racial innuendo and the mayor's race, but that does not invalidate it as a problem. It can't be wished away. U.S. Rep. Harold Washington, a candidate who just happens to be black, says he wants to be everyone's candidate and has addressed taxes and other problems that make no racial distinction, except to those immovable objects on both sides who believe those people are keeping us from getting anything. But at the same time, he has exhorted the true believers that it is our turn. Mayor Jane Byrne who has no more bridges to burn with the black community, is trying to construct a new one based on social programs and her new budget. Yet speaking before a black church congregation, she said, I will not let race become a campaign issue. That would be a step backward. State's attorney Richard M. Daly is assured of some sympathy votes because of the memory of his dad who at least spoke to blacks, though 
often in a different tone and language than he spoke to whites. He has taken on Michael Scott, one of the black school board members replaced by Mayor Byrne as a deputy in his campaign. With Alderman Edward Burke, 14th, and Roman Posinski, 41st, and whoever else has the urge putting in their names for a contingency, great white hope, just in case Washington takes the primary, it's time to acknowledge that race is going to be an issue, whether anyone wants it to be or not. Accept this for the ugliness that it is, and stop all the false piety about how we are a decent enough people to rise above it. Chicago ain't ready for reform, not yet, but if we start now, we might be ready next time. Why keep up the pretense? Don't try to sweep it aside, deal with it. To solve the problem, we must first define it. This mayoral campaign may provide the best chance. All those years of being called the most segregated city in the nation haven't been undeserved. Neighborhood boundaries in this town weren't made up by the cartographers. There are real frightening reasons behind this racial standoff, but imaginary but more frightening ones to be dealt with. It's a shame, but more shameful to be dishonest about it. Some simple exercises can start the peace process. Blacks should keep in mind that every political maneuver isn't meant to shut them out. But whites should keep in mind that that is too often the case. Whites must stop thinking that every black teenager who whisks by on the sidewalk is a thug. And blacks might accept that more than a few white whites genuinely understand and sympathize with them. Whites might think deeper about the historic and socioeconomic reasons, not excuses for black shortcomings and not brush aside a race of people as hopeless and hopelessly all the same, with the exception of a few mutant achievers. Blacks might knock harder at the doors of opportunity and recognize that some will not open without special effort. These ideas are not so naive as they may sound when one considers maintaining the status quo, and the status quo is the issue here. The crusades being waged on both sides are galling. Blacks are not trying to take over, though some of them may well think this is the big one. Whites can't keep running everything, though many certainly would like to. A pox on both their houses. The point is that this mayoral race, whoever wins, could be the great political emancipator for everyone in this town. But first, everyone has to fess up and everybody has to give and take. April 23rd, 1983. Militancy and Black Women. The rhetoric was 60s, but the subject was decidedly 80s. The 100 black women who gathered at a conference of the Milwaukee Black Women's Network symbolized the new militancy. 
the new militancy is not fist-waving or teeth-clenching or Swahili-speaking, though the Afro hairstyle is still prevalent. Rather, it is business-suited, financially astute, and well-spoken, but still with a heavy dose of the old-fashioned emotional politics of Black is Beautiful. The room, full, the room full of confident black females was living proof of Andrew Young's summation of the evolution of the revolution. In the 60s, the problems were social. We addressed those problems. The back of the bus, the lunch counter, the movie theater, the hotel motel, the right to travel. In the 70s, the problems were essentially political. We address those problems with the election of thousands of black elected officials. In the 1980s, the problems are economic. Before the women split up for workshops on such topics as effective communication, dressing for success, and cable TV ownership, they were roused with a preachy rendition of the old militancy delivered by Marsha Ann Gillespie former editor of Essence Magazine, and a contributing editor to Miss. I am a Sojourner Truth feminist, Gillespie intoned, referring to the black woman, a freed slave, who became the darling of the abolitionist lecture circuit in the 1840s. Gillespie admonished black women not to be afraid of the term feminist, or to participate in feminist organizations run by women of the majority culture, which is the new militancy term for the pejorative 60s description of whites. Feminism is a liberation struggle like any other, and blacks are particularly well-equipped for it, she said. But black women must be ever mindful that they often will have to split with majority feminists, particularly on third world issues, said Gillespie, who attended a world conference of women in Europe last year. In discussing media images of the black female, Rochelle Bridges of Milwaukee's WISN TV further evoked 60s deja vu. The enthusiastic and knowing laughs and nods of the heads reminiscent of the old chants of right on. She outlined the stereotypes black women must break through. They are of Mammy, the strong as a mule character of Hattie McDaniel and Gone with the Wind. The tragic mulatto played by Jean Crane in Imitation of Life. The hot mama of black ploitation films. The Innocent Ingenue, a la Diane Carroll's old Julia show, and Sapphire of Amos and Andy's fame. Her point is that black women, like all women, should not be typecast in life or in the media. They are all and none of these if anything, they must often display the best quality of Sapphire, her strength, Bridges said. The image conjured by those in attendance supported her point. 
It would have been an instant education to those who see black women only as welfare queens or sequined gowned superstars. The upwardly mobile segment is slowly growing, but it is contrasted by the more rapidly growing segment shunted aside under the newfound sociological catch-all, the feminization of poverty. A Census Bureau report has discovered that median black income actually would have increased to 14830 from 1970 to 1980 instead of decreasing from 13325 to 12674 except for those poorest single female heads of households, which weighted down the figure. It is this loss by the bulk of blacks just at a time of such strides for a relative few that fuels the new militancy in all quarters of the black community. Particularly susceptible is the black middle class, which whites see mistake as the norm and then are baffled by its discontent. The new militancy is an anger by those who are being showcased that other blacks are not being given the same chance. Many of the women at the conference were those who took advantage of the chance. They are still capitalizing on the liberal programs of the 60s, on the education they could not otherwise have afforded and the self-assuredness imbued in them because they made it. They want to see the same afforded to others. The new militancy is being preached by as unlikely a bomb thrower as Naomi Sims, the former model turned one woman wig and cosmetics business enterprise. In her new book, All About Success for the Black Woman, Double Day, she translates it to the corporate world. We, black women, are invariably the losers in the minority sweepstakes that pits us against black men and white women. At the moment, white women are winning hands down. They occupy over 15% of all managerial positions. One theory for this is that of the three groups, white women fit in the executive structure the best because they learn from their husbands, fathers, and brothers how to manipulate in that world. They only have to be assimilated on one level, that of the job, not also on a social and or cultural level. In other words, sex is less of a barrier than race and a corporation wishing to promote up from the ranks or to recruit executives from outside will prefer white women. That leaves us nowhere. No one would deny that the progress of blacks is real and measurable. The very evidence of it is that a book so titled is on the market. But to those who thought the revolution was over, the sisterhood in Milwaukee was a time to gather reinforcements. May 21st, 1983. Portrait of a Living Legacy. 
to a people robbed of history. The work of photographer James A. J. Vanderzee is an immense treasure. Vanderzee, who opened the Guarantee Photo Studio in Harlem in 1916, recorded decades of Black America. He died Sunday at 96, just hours after receiving an honorary degree at Howard University. Van Derzy was to black portraiture what Ansel Adams is to nature photography. But like most else in black culture, he was not well known outside of it. Sadder still is that he is not all that well known to young blacks. His work is like the remaining volume in a set of lost rare books. One would delight in the entire set. But because so much is missing, what remains is more precious still. The photos of Van Derzy, though taken primarily in Harlem, represents a picture encyclopedia of the commonality of the black experience over the span of miles. His church women were the church women of every black congregation everywhere. His proper matrones were the aunts and grandmothers of black people everywhere who had not dried and faded treasures of which to boast or to frame. It is difficult to express the limbo of the black diaspora to those who can journey back to the ancestral home in County Mayo or who regularly corresponds with an uncle in Krakow or who finger the lace handkerchief great-great-grandmother stitched on the boat on the way to Ellis Island. Most blacks have neither heirlooms nor language to attest to their origins, substantiate their continuity for all the enthusiasm stirred by Alex Haley's roots. Van Derzy opened his studio at the beginning of the Great Harlem Renaissance, the 1920s and 1930s. He was one of the many talented who, while their outpourings were distinguished, remain unusual all the more because they were the first to enjoy a wide public forum. Black men and women of arts and letters flowed into the New York enclave. Magnetized by fame and full of zeal to explain black America to itself and to the wider culture, to enlist in the army of good works that would at last deliver black people. For all of the rowdy good times that ran concurrent to the poetry readings and nightlong philosophical debates, the Harlem Renaissance left an astounding body of black feeling and thought, including the Negro National Anthem, lift every voice and sing. It did not, however, bridge the cultures or deliver black people, and many black school children today are lacking in knowledge, even of this recent past. Van Derzy's archives are significant, not because of his name clientele, but because of the nobodies he photographed and the everyday joy and struggles of life. He was in the midst of the tumult of the Back to Africa movement of Marcus Garvey. He shook the 
prodigious hand of poet Langston Hughes. He jolted the musculature of the Brown Bomber and Jack Johnson into memorable poses. But he also left the vision of the Moorish Zionists, black Jews, a peak inside a hair salon, a high-styling couple in raccoon coats. Born in Lenox, Massachusetts in 1886, Van Derzy began taking photos in 1900. Largely self-taught, he received his only formal training when he worked for a department store portrait taker in Newark, New Jersey in 1915. In six months, he opened his own studio. He was a pioneer in the artistry of photography, experimenting with superimposing images and retouching, using glitter to stimulate snowflakes or painting a necklace on a bare-necked subject. Van Derzy retired in 1969 in unpleasant personal circumstances. But that year, the Metropolitan Museum of Art put on an exhibit called Harlem on My Mind, the title of one of Van Derzy's collections, which renewed his fortunes. He started to work again in 1980 and was much in demand by such stars as Bill Cosby. Van Derzy's third wife, Donna Musadin, some 60 years his junior, finally cataloged and copyrighted many of his 75,000 works. In February 1980, they were displayed in the Cultural Center here during Black History Month. The artist himself appeared at a reception at Timbuktu, a black-oriented bookstore on the near south side. When Van Derzy arrived, he was a disconcerting sight at first in a wheelchair, but he was unbelievably robust and jovial at 94 and plunged into autographing. Uh, just missed the last two paragraphs. I'll include those really quick. What was it that compelled those of us in the anxious crowd who confessed to having only recently discovered this living legacy as an award from President Jimmy Carter so aptly described him to seek him out? It was an ignorance of the past, no disgrace to confess to, for ferreting the secrets of black history is a never-ending quest. There are so many gaps in the chronicles of black America, so little effort to fill them because many educators are themselves deficient in the area. Any proof of the endurability and achievements of black people is snatched up, coveted, exchanged. Such was the allure of Vanderzee. He had helped to preserve a race of people who were then invisible to give it form, to affirm its being, to legitimize its past. With that, we will pick up there next week, uh, the next essay. Uh, looking forward to hearing more from Miss Leonita McLean. Uh, folks would like to dial in to share their thoughts. The number to dial 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. 3640. The code is 564 
pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, we have uh, about 30 minutes left. Uh, again, thanks to our narrator. I uh, hope folks are enjoying getting some constructive information from the text. Uh, all the folks who dialed in uh, to participate, uh, lines should be open. So that's Thomas in New York, uh, Roz, Mr. Demery Four, uh, and our narrator, caller in Michigan. Uh, we'll start with her since she didn't get to participate during the first audio segment. Uh, any thoughts you would like to share? And again, our massive appreciation for taking time out of your schedule to read for us for the first week. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, good evening, Gus, to the callers. Um, this book has uh, definitely been um, interesting. Uh, I'm learning about a woman whose experience I definitely can relate to in so many ways. So I wanted to thank everyone for voting on this book. Um, I had never heard of Leonetta McClain. So um, it's just interesting um, because I can relate to her workplace racism, all of the, just a lot of the things that she is, um, that she was speaking about. So um, it's, it's just different for me, um, just just understanding, uh, you know, then her decision to commit suicide. Um, I wanted to speak about on page 19 uh, where she talked about, um, I think it was uh, Pierre DeVisi when he was speaking about how it says uh, the ultimate ulterior motive for this um, is to make certain blacks will be blocked in any bid for the mayor's office. Um, speaking of, you know, me living in Detroit, and it took me to read this to see how what happened here in Detroit with the previous black mayors, uh, and now we have a white mayor, uh, Mayor Duggan. I just remember during his campaign how everyone was just saying, you know, the black mayors did us wrong and it's time for us to get, you know, like this great white hope. And to see that it happened in Chicago, I mean, I didn't even know about this until I read this book. And I'm like, wow, this is just business as usual. They're taking it and, you know, using the blueprint that has worked in so many other cities and it's happening in Detroit. And um, it's just, it's interesting. Um, I also just kind of chuckled a little bit um, when I was, reading the part about the, um, the feminist, um, from what I understand, March is supposed to be women's, uh, women's month or women's history month. And so many, uh, I have quite a few, uh, women in my circle who choose to identify with this feminist movement. So, and I remember last year when I was at a conference or an empowerment conference and they were, you know, pushing the feminism and just really, you know, we're women, we're feminists. And it was just blah, blah, blah. And I remember <laughs> I, you know, took the microphone and I was listening to the cows back then and um, I was less confused. And so I got on the mic and I was like, well, I'm not a feminist. I'm a victim of racism, white supremacy. And I just chuckled because I remember they turned the microphone off. They were like, well, we don't want to hear that, you know. And so they cut, took the mic from me, and it was just, you know, let's just, you know, empower each other. They didn't want to talk about racism. They were like, oh, no, we're not here for that. So 
Um, it was just interesting um, to, to read that part in the book um, because that is something that will take away from the real issue, which is uh, racism, white supremacy. So again, um, those are the notes I made, and thank you for allowing me to uh, narrate, and thank you for voting for this book, and I'll mute my line. Wow. Amazing. I'm a victim of white supremacy and the mic is turned off. That is amazing. I said, hey, I thought we were about empowering, uh, empowering each other. How is that empowering to have me uh, muted where I can't, uh, you know, share and speak and, you know, be uh, be affirmed? Does racism not exist? I would have maybe asked that question, too. Does anybody here think racism is not a problem? Uh, just to, you know, see if I'm just talking crazy. Um, if, uh, if other folks have comments that they want to make sure that they, uh, share, uh, again, Thomas in New York, uh, Roz, uh, Mr. Dermot Bohr, you all should be with us. Any other, uh, black female listeners that are in, if you have comments, feel free to chime in as well. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Um, I would like to say thank you to the sister in Michigan who's reading the book. She's doing an incredible job. I appreciate the work that you do. Um, and I'm glad that we're reading this book as well. It's just, it's a fascinating read. Um, she did, she wrote something that I found to be very brilliant, even though I'm not sure if she meant it as deeply as it affected me when I read it. Um, on page 20, she said, can white politicals really be so cleverly conspiratorial? Probably so with power at stake, even in those cases where the black community clamors for certain offices. And just the fact that she could, even question their cons- the conspiratorial nature of white people. And I, w- and I was just like, that was such a brilliant assessment. And then when she went into saying, um, especially with power at stake, even in those cases when uh, the, the black community clamors for certain offices, really speaks to the fact that we don't control anything, even when we're quote-unquote clamoring for certain offices. It's always anything that we are uh, looked at as being in, in a position of power. There is no power except racism and white supremacy. So those uh, black people, uh, President Obama included, who look like they're in, the, in, in a very powerful position can always be supplanted and subjugated at any given moment. And I think President Obama is the most poignant example of that in the last eight years, to say the least. Um, also, she said something else that I found very fascinating. She said on the same page, as pervasive as it is, racism is nearly impossible to prove. Now it has taken on a new guise. Wow. I mean, just the, the, the fact that um, she's recognizing back then that white people were already making racism impossible to prove due to the so-called integration and all the rights that we fought for gave them actually, um, I would say, the ability to practice, like she said, more insidious forms of racism that um, have manifested from back then and obviously is still going on to this very day, uh, just based on what we read about and talk about so regularly on this program. Um, Also, she said something else on 22. uh, She said uh, about, she said, uh, don't try to sweep it aside, deal with it. To solve the problem, we must first define it. And it made me think of Dr. Welsing because she basically has said the same thing. She said, you know, we need to deal with this issue and I remember she always spoke of the Buddhist proverb that says the beginning of wisdom is to call something by its proper name. And we always speak about definitions. So, um, again, it speaks to the importance of defining what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, 
defining what it actually means to be white, because that is, I think, the second most important question um, to ask as, as far as um, racism and white supremacy is concerned, besides the whole idea of how do we get rid of it. I think the second most important thing is what does it mean to be white? Because once you get that concept, then everything else will fall in line because you understand that these people are the same no matter how they behave. Uh, in an overt fashion in public, that there's always an, uh, uh, an, an undercurrent uh, subtlety of racism, white supremacy, even in the most well-seemingly meaning white people, which there are none. Um, oh, and I found an interesting example of white validation um, that Thomas in New York brought up, where she said on 23, and blacks might accept that more than a few whites genuinely understand and sympathize with them. It made me cringe. Um, I understand that she's a victim of white supremacy. And, and obviously, like I said earlier, um, there's definitely a, a very high level of confusion. And it just seems to manifest itself in such strange ways because she also, on the flip side, um, this is, again goes back to that metaphor for the title of um, A Foot in Each World, really goes to show, like, as brilliant as she was in assessing racism in so many ways, she was also so confused by her interactions with both black people and white people that it kind of reared its, its head in, in just incredible ways, um, I think, throughout the text. And, um, and finally, the, the last thing I wanted to ch ch uh, chime in about was another example of white validation when she was speaking about uh, the photographer, and she spoke about an award being presented from Jimmy Carter. And it just seems like she really wanted to... Um, really was about white validation in certain ways, but really was about showing white people the best of what black people had to offer um, in her mind. It was something, and I think a lot of us carry that in certain ways where um, where we might be in certain instances where we are the only black person or, or one of very few, and um, we seek to represent the, the race, quote unquote, in a way in which uh, we, we are looking to make white people look at us in a certain way, and they never will. They look at us as niggas, no matter, no matter what you look like and what you do. And um, we, I just think that that kind of brought that home for me. And I'll mute my line. Thank you. Uh, Thomas in New York, uh, Mr. Demery Four. Either of you have uh, questions, comments you want to get in, or anybody else? Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, yes, quickly. Uh, those were good points uh, brought up by Roz and also the female caller, and thanks for. Uh, the book reading, but, you know, talking about uh, politics and how the system is used to, uh, to perpetuate uh, people in positions of power, you know, that was interesting. And also, uh, uh, when she started to talk about uh, militancy, uh, the, the new militancy, <clears throat> and she was talking about stereotypes of black women, and she described different types, you know, the mammy, the strong as the mule character of Hattie McDaniel, and also uh, Sapphire of the old Amos and Andy shows which is uh, so old that I'm probably the only one that can remember that show. But then she goes back at the end and says, if anything, 
they most often display the quality of sapphire, her strength. So then she talks about stereotypes, and then she goes back and uses sapphire as a stereotype. But one of the uh, good points that she made on page 25, she said, in other words, sex is less of a barrier than race and a corporation which wishing to promote up from the ranks or to recruit executives from outside will prefer white women. That leaves us nowhere. So she did uh, realize, even if she felt uh, somewhat of a feminist, that race would trump that. And also, it was also interesting, uh, the living legend, you know, I did know of this guy, but I was just wondering when they mentioned his spouse, uh, Donna Musenden, if she was a white woman. And I'll mute my line on that. Thanks for taking the call, Gus. Hmm. One uh, folks want to do a little research to find out that would be interesting. Uh, Thomas in New York, did you have a uh, commentary you wanted to get in? Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, good evening again. Um, everyone made great points. I'm trying not to be redundant. Um, man, that was a great story that the um, lady um, from Michigan um, shared with her at that feminist event. How they shut the mic down. Wow, unbelievable. Um, Quickly, I'm going to run through it. Um, the essays read in the section section. Um, the section reading this, e- this evening was um, much more aligned with my views. <laughs> Some of the, the passages you read were just dynamic. Um, understanding that, that um, man, that this was so such a poignant point when, when she said, understanding, I, I don't have the quote, I don't have the books, but I'm a paraphrase. Um, that blacks are put in position of authority pretty much only over blacks, but she made the great point that the position of authority are usually to play the fall guy, you know, after years of neglect or failures by white people, you know, it's easy to put a black person there to say, okay, um, now you sit there and uh, when everything comes out in this report, you know, I'm thinking Flint, you know, they put that black lady as the mayor. This thing was going on way before she got there. And, um, you know, I'm glad that, People didn't blame her. They're, they're keeping the focus on Snyder, hopefully. Um, but just just amazing. Um, just that she's her views to me are starting to come more in line. Um, especially on Latinos. Um, how you know they're always going to be treated better than us. You know, it, it's what it is. I've I've seen the same thing. Um, and I just wish she had more in depth knowledge of um, Dr. Weldon's research when she was um. Writing. I don't know if she did or not, but I'm just saying um, the the genetic annihilation, you know, I mean, it kind of puts into perspective why, you know, it, I mean, if I was white, I wouldn't want to live around a bunch of people that can um, annihilate me genetically either. You know, I mean, I'm going to watch my daughter, I'm going to watch my son, you know, <laughs> yeah, so I, I kind of, you know, think that would have definitely, um, you know, made her, her right, uh, her 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 sister things a lot more being right in line. And um, I'm my line. Thank you very much. For sure. Uh, even though they uh, both resided in the Chicago area, Dr. Welsing's uh, ISIS papers was not published uh, at the time that 
Leonina McLean uh, committed suicide. Um, she was obviously doing her work, but ISIS Papers was not out at that time. Don't know if she knew of her work. Uh, quick things I wanted to get in. Uh, and again, if we have uh, other folks who haven't commented yet, uh, you should get your hand up like right now. Uh, if you want to make sure you get it in before we wrap things up. Uh, I, incredible passage that she starts off the essay, uh, The Insidious New Racism, uh, where she says uh, that this is a white person uh, who is breaking this down uh, at the Conference on Public Policy for Equal Opportunity and Affirmative Action. <laughs> like, uh, And this uh, white person, uh, Mr. Uh, Devise, I guess is his name. Uh, where he says, just by appointing blacks to preside over failing agencies, white politicians and bureaucrats can achieve two goals. First, they can blame failures not on abandonment by the white middle class, where the blame belongs, but on the supposed greed and incompetence of black officials and workers. Second, they can additionally undermine public respect and confidence in black officials, thereby reducing and retarding the chances of successful black mayoral candidate in the years ahead i think that is breaking down white code succinctly and all of that is in direct quotes uh, i would have loved to have been at this presentation and to ask uh some questions the only thing is when you uh continue and i think ross brought it out you know excellent she she follows that with the rhetorical question can white politicians really be so cleverly conspiratorial which is what i said before about sometimes i think we have a hard time believing that uh whites their pathology uh, reaches the depths that it does uh, in terms of the things that they will do. And I mean, this probably does not even begin to scratch the surface uh, of the diabolical and treacherous things that whites have and continue to do uh, to black people. But sometimes because of our, vic our victimization, we have a hard time accepting that, yes, that's what it is. This is the type of thing that whites are engaged in all the time. Even the whites that we think are cool and liberal and our friends and we go and hang out to lunch and maybe even sexually engaged with. Yes, even them. Uh, but the thing that I thought was fascinating was that I didn't know what the term Hosanna's uh, meant. I don't know if anybody on the call H-O-S-A-N-N-A-S, -N -N plural, Hosanna uh, or plural, but I didn't know what that term meant. So I had to look it up. Uh, and the definition is uh, used to express adoration, praise or joy. And I just thought, wow, because it's a, it seems to be a biblical term, has some sort of religious uh, connotation. And I just don't I mean, I say that all the time. It's, it should not be a surprise that white people are very informed uh, about other oh, whites about racism, white supremacy. They're talking about their uncles, their cousins, their mom, their sons, their brothers, their sisters. It's no surprise that they are informed about they themselves about what they are doing. And I think a lot of times they catch us uh, with that because we're victims where a white person will give us uh, a small bit of accurate information about racism, white supremacy and how whites are terrorizing us. And it's, oh, my gosh, Jane Elliott. Oh, Lord. Uh, Timothy Wise. This is the greatest white person ever. And it's just, oh, OK. One racist has given us a little bit of information that probably is going to throw us off the track somehow where they're not giving up everything uh, about how all of this works. They're giving up one bit of information, which, you know, you catalog it, make note of it, ask some questions. But this person is probably racist, too. That's the way that we should be thinking accurately uh, about all this. Um, next up, uh, I thought she she said uh, without call, I want to make sure that I get it correctly. She said that sometimes uh, that. 
black. Oh yeah, she could. T- she didn't just say a few Hosanna. She says uh, a white person actually said what blacks long have believed. His statement was a godsend. It was a lot of that religious. Like this is some white Jesus uh, incarnation, or at least you know an angel or something that came down to say all this. And I just that is fascinating. Uh, where she goes on to talk about this racism gripe. Uh, she says that. Uh, oh no, not that racism gripe again. Yes, I'm afraid so. That racism gripe again. Granted, it has been sounded so often without cause that even black people get tired of it. And I just, I, <laughs> I am stunned as to when there has been a time ever where someone has made an allegation of racism without cause. Uh, if anything, I would say not, but well, let me say it the deliberate 10 times out of nine, we miss when racism should be alleged that that's what's happening 10 times out of nine. That's the way I meant to say it. We miss uh, when it's being practiced, when we should say something, we just don't grasp the totality of what whites are doing all the time. That would be my assessment that it's not that it's being uh, done where it's not actually being practiced. Uh, I thought it was really uh, significant Uh, when she's going through all the new racism. It sounds a lot, you know, the refinement, but I thought it was really important. I'm just echoing uh, Clarence Page, her former husband, said it at the end uh, or at the beginning of this essay, uh, how close the final sentence where she's talking about racism and how long it's been here, where she says it took hundreds of years to build uh, another hundred even to dent it. And I fear I will not live to see it demolished, that that is extremely close to what she included in her suicide note to where she said that she uh, didn't think that she would live long enough to see her people free uh, talking about black people. Uh, And again, I mean, just for someone with this much talent uh, to be writing a suicide note and talking directly about racism and what she's seeing happening to black people in Chicago uh, that just dramatically impacted uh, her mental health is, is just, It is incredible, uh, almost at a loss for words. Um, Continuing, the metaphors are extremely important as well, because where she she talks about racism being, quote unquote, a two way street, Uh, incredible metaphor. And it kind of comes back to this thing again, where I say frequently people talk about racism, white supremacy as though there is equal blame. And I hear this a lot from white people and non-white people that, you know, black people have a part in this. White people have a part in this. There are things that white people do. There are things that black people do uh, in all of this. And and that I hear that even that metaphor on a pretty regular basis that, you know, this is a quote unquote two way street. And I I categorically uh, reject that. Uh, We should not speak about racism, white supremacy. Uh, In that manner, racism is not a road. Uh, This is white terrorism. Anything that black people do is a response to terrorism. Uh, Moving forward, uh, where she's talking about, I guess this is the next essay, the uh, the racial truth of politics, uh, where she's uh, she says one cannot be a full fledged black here without adhering to these beliefs. Uh, and it's talking about the, I guess, the amusement park being shut down uh, because too many black people were there and uh, no one in power cares about the public schools because only black children attend them. Uh, I just think it's significant because it seems like that's a major theme throughout her work, uh, blackness and not being black enough or being challenged 
uh, because of your views that maybe you are not quote unquote authentically black. Uh, and I think a lot of that is just, again, the, the confusion that white people generate about racism, white supremacy. I am not a member of a race. They're, they're I mean, just really letting go of that notion that there's some such a thing as an authentically black person or a full fledged uh, black person. Uh, if you're a black, it just means that you are intensely victimized under the system of white supremacy. I don't think there are any other qualifications uh, that go with that. And I think whites have tricked us into wasting a lot of time and energy uh, bickering and squabbling with other victims of white supremacy uh, about who is blacker than thou. There was lots of that uh, in the 1960s, 70s, and apparently is continuing, unfortunately, on into uh, the 21st century. But just not having clarity about what racism, white supremacy is. Um, even some of the comparisons that are made here, when she's again, in my view, trying to talk about this as though this is the Hatfields and McCoys, this is just a dispute between two uh, equals talking about racism when that is just absolutely not the case. Uh, and I think it's also important in her getting these promotions and, and these type of things. I don't know what her understanding of racism, white supremacy is. It could be that she was trying to. Uh, appeal to white readers or uh, white people that were in power deciding whether or not she was going to be able to have her material published and, and keep these jobs that she was getting. I think it said that she was only the second black person in the position that she was hired for the Chicago Tribune in the 137 year history of the paper. So, I mean, that is extraordinary. And I would think a lot of pressure, a lot of stress to be in that sort of tacky and terroristic environment in Chicago. But uh, she, I suspect probably had to be very careful about what she was saying uh, and the way that she talked about white people. And that certainly comes full force next week uh, when we get to the essay that she wrote on uh, how Chicago taught me to hate whites. Um, let's see. Moving forward. Mm, let's see on page where she talks about the taxes where Harold Washington, who did win this uh, election for mayor, uh, where she talks about how he was trying to pick out issues that would appeal to everyone. That tax issue is another one where I don't think we have enough information. One of our guests, Andrew Carl, who is a white man, suspected race soldier, he said that he's coming out. That's going to be his next research project. I think he said he's doing a whole book on it, that taxes is something that is not equally applied to black people. And that's something that most people probably don't know very much about because whites have done a very good job at considering that but black people just get hammered uh, with taxes where they're not paying uh, the same amount of taxes as white people and he said a lot of times you would have difficulty even finding this out because you don't have access to see well what are the tax uh, rates for white people and then what are the tax rates for black people and he said that in his research he found that they even had different books uh, for the taxes that whites were paying and the taxes that blacks were paying and you could not get access to that book if you were a black person so that was one that I, I Another illustration of how uh, racism is not even being called out all the times that it should be. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, where she talks about man, where she says uh, some si simple exercises that can start the process. Again, this whole paragraph where it's, she's talking as though these are whites and blacks are equally to blame in the system of racism. Where she says blacks should keep in mind that every political maneuver isn't meant to shut them out. When she started off the passage, the, the, the essay, where this white man was saying, yes, white people conspire. They're deliberately putting black people in these positions, setting them up to fail so that they can then blame them when they know that they have engineered all of this. And she questioned, like, wow, can they really be doing it? And then she goes to say that one of the things black people can do, hey, white people are not always scheming against you. I 
that is totally false in my view. No, you should always have the suspicion that the dominant motivating factor that is encouraging what whites are doing is practicing racism, white supremacy at all times, everything that they're doing. The paragraph continues uh, where she says, uh, but whites should keep in mind that it too often is the case. Whites must stop thinking that every black teenager who whisks by them on the sidewalk is a thug and blacks might accept that more than a few whites genuinely understand and sympathize with them. Ooh, painful, uh, painful uh, read. I think folks brought that up before, but just I was in total agreement there. Whites might think deeper about the historic and socioeconomic reasons, not excuses for black shortcomings, where, again, she's already cited earlier in the essay that they know that they have caused them uh, this. Uh, I would even relate it again, this notion that white people are ignorant, that they don't know these things. They're doing these things. We already thought about it. We sat down and did the math to make sure that you're going to be in a decrepit and impoverished state worldwide. Uh, she continues when she says. Uh, and not brush aside people. Da, da, da. With the exception of humanity, blacks might knock harder at the doors of opportunity and recognize that some will not open without special effort. I'll just pause uh, for remembrance of Renisha McBride. Black people knocking hard on doors can be lethal. Uh, I had one more. I didn't even know who James uh, Van Vanderzee. I didn't even know who he was. I'd never heard of him. Uh, before he has extraordinary work. You can look online. A lot of his uh, photographs are, are available. Uh, I would encourage folks to check it out. He even has some interesting photographs of Bill Cosby, if you are uh, so inclined to look. And Miles Davis and some other folks that I think you will recognize. The essay on militancy and black women was, was fantastic for a lot of uh, different reasons. I really appreciate her pointing out at the end, the winner, uh, if people want to compare and they talk about racism, white supremacy as it being the man, white men, uh, when they pointed that out, that white women come on top of everybody. That should not be lost. That should be hugely emphasized. Uh, she classified, it seemed like she was talking about white women as though they were quote unquote minorities. That's not the case. That's another major error that we make. White women should always be thought of as equal partners in the system of white supremacy. You couldn't have this system without white women. And there are tons and tons of people who talk about this in a way that it's non-white people and white women, that we're all victims in this together. That is, I can't even call it hogwash. That is a deliberate act of racism to confuse us about what is happening. And it is putting a race soldier next to you. And you're not supposed to think of them at it. You're supposed to think of these white women as fellow victims. Nothing could be further from the truth. Hillary Clinton. Uh, I will stop there. The person that dialed in, uh, we had two people that are calling in uh, late. If you could dial in earlier with a hand up, that would be greatly appreciated because we really have done our three. Uh, I'll hit the uh, two folks that dialed in late, but we've been here for three hours. You could get your hand up if you had additional commentary. Uh, the person from a block number, uh, did you want to go? And then I'll get the caller at 3666. Block number, did you have commentary? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with what, the, what you're saying with regards to white women have been equal partners in <clears throat> white supremacy. But we do have to understand. I, I'm hearing a clicking sound. Oh, I think somebody might be uh, dialing. Sorry about that. It should be, it should be gone now. Okay. Sorry. Please proceed. Okay. And so basically, but we do have to um, um, think about the part that we play um, against ourselves. And, um, and we do do that because um, I've made many comments with regard to um, as a black woman, I feel like I have to watch out uh, for white supremacist um, men as well as black men. And they, they, and they attack me and, and, and try to belittle me 
just as much as white people, sometimes more. And so it's not, it, and that's how we should we should have to um, actually think about what uh, you know how 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 what harm are we doing to ourselves and in doing if you sit there and you plan to do harm, uh, particularly if you're a man and you're supposed to be protecting your black woman, if you're doing harm, then, I mean. You know, you're, you're helping out. You're helping out the white supremacists. You're helping out the KKK. And so I think that's the way to, that that we we need to think about it. And and it, and it's not that you know, and it's not that we're you know, we I, I do think that we do have. I think that we are playing a part of in it. And I think that that should not be taken lightly at all. And particularly, I think that with regards to men, in a way that men treat the women, black women. I do think that that's something that we need to look at. Oh, for sure. I, I think, uh, and I think we talked about that uh, during the first uh, audio segment in terms of black people. We do a lot of mistreating each other. I think black males mistreat black females. Absolutely. Black males mistreat other black males. Uh, and I think as Pam has pointed out with emphasis, black females mistreat a lot of black females as well. Uh, I think that's something that we certainly uh, need to do a much better job because all of that, as you stated correctly, it, benefits it strengthens the system of white supremacy and i think all of us just making a better effort to be patient with other non-white people to not mistreat other non-white people uh to do as much as we can if we cannot help out in some way to at least minimize conflict try to be courteous as we can uh with other black people i think that would be a tremendous asset step in the correct direction uh in solving this problem absolutely Uh, and sometimes and May I? And sometimes, Gus, if someone is doing something that is just totally incorrect over a period of time, um, don't I think black people should not hesitate in um, calling the police and taking other black people to court when black people systematically get together and do things for a period of time for years against a innocent black person. I think that they should. The innocent black person is in their right to take them to court. And I don't think that we should be afraid and or um, be um, labeled in any such way um, as we defend ourselves over, you know, tacky uh, black people who will basically um, have the KKK hood over their face and um, making problems for innocent black people. And thank you all. Listen off air. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the caller at 3666, did you have a comment you wanted to get in as well? 3666. Yes, yes. Um, thank you for having me. I just wanted to make a comment that um, white women are just terrors on the job. I only speak from experience because I'm an attorney and work at a large firm on contracts. And they just walk around terrorizing people. Where, you know, they report people for minor infractions, like, for example, we have a dress code policy. They're looking at your shoes, the color of your stockings. You know, they're looking at what you have on to try to get you fired. And it's just so stressful. I mean, I've had people come up to me and pretty much usually white women, and they'll try to give you a compliment and ask you how much did you pay for your suit. Things like that. And, you know, we're supposed to be practicing law, but we're so busy worried about how we're going to keep our job is very difficult to concentrate. And I would just share that I think that white women are terrorists. And I feel more fear 
from them than the white men. Because you know that when they're talking to you, it's, it's never good. It really is. And um, I'll mute my line. Thank you. Definitely dangerous. We've done whole programs on uh, white women in uh, the job or on the job. Uh, whole programs, they certainly cause a, a variety of problems and are generally not even thought of uh, as racist victims, as was pointed out in the uh, the essay that we read. Uh, with that, we will wrap things up. Uh, again, if folks, uh, if you have commentary, if you could dial in earlier, that would be great. That way we don't have to do uh, any extra time. Uh, we'll be here next week uh, picking up where we left off at same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we should be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll also be here on Sunday. Uh, the white professor that uh, Thomas in New York wanted us to have on the program uh, should be with us Sunday. Uh, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I'll be looking forward. Always great to have uh, whites on the program as the problem remains. White people, racist woman, racist man, racist child. Uh, if you have questions, confusion, commentary, she didn't get in, feel free to drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Uh, we can read as we go along. We should be on this book for, it's not that long, maybe, I don't know, five weeks or so, roughly. Uh, it's not that long a book, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, with that, thanks again to our narrator in Michigan. Grand job with the reading, and uh, we'll look forward to continuing with the book next week. Uh, with that, uh, we again ask, as usual, uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, definitely do not want to be around any intoxicated folks, non-whites or whites. Uh, we want to be able to make the best decisions possible to keep ourselves safe and anybody that we might be responsible for. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism-notes.blogspot.com Racism-notes.blogspot.com Listener-supported counter racist radio paypal button is in the top right corner if you're not in the paypal drop us an email and we'll get you a physical mailing address huge thanks to all the folks who have supported us seven years plus i hope the program has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy Uh, with that creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cows signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother a victim I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.